Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Grimecast. As always, I'm your host, Nutchucks, and with me as always... The guy who thinks this will get easier with practice, but apparently it doesn't. Browbeat. No, it never does. Uh, like the last episode, we want to uh, thank our sponsor for this week, the letter X. Do you know why it's the letter X? Is it because of X-Blades, the seminal classic on 360 and PS3? No, because X is going to give it to you. The video in the background today of our video is going to be Resident Evil 2. Uh, if you remember the last podcast, podcast, we discussed that you played Resident Evil 2. We did. Uh-huh. How did you play it? I played it like a biatch. I played it with infinite ammunition and a guide. And I found the experience to still be reasonably tense every now and then. It's just the not knowing portion. Once you know, yeah, things move along. I'll even give huge compliments to the second run, which removes pretty much all the story, which is fine. And if you just want to play the game with the flow of running, picking up, inserting, and squeezing the trigger, that was that was nice. Max Payne 3 could use a couple of notes from that because the cutscenes really cut into the action. Still, Resident Evil 2, tell me more about it in this context, if you got something to say. I do. So guess what I did, sir? Uh, you found out that Steve Buscemi is still not canceled. That's a small miracle. Uh, if he is canceled, there's... I mean, he can cancel everybody else for making fun of a guy with a weird eye, so... Uh, no. no it's, the tipping thing is actually what got him all those years ago. Tipping? I don't remember that incident. Oh, it was the famous scene from the beginning of Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Oh, oh Because yeah, he was yeah. portraying a character, he did deliver his whole speech, but then people aggressed him in real life for being a bad tipper, so ever since then, he's had to tip generously, just, just to avoid <laughs> problems. Uh, Whoops. No, so I, uh, if you're watching the video, you won't notice it now because it's right at the beginning. I skipped the intro and everything. Uh, I played the game like you did, sir. I went and bought the DLC to unlock all the infinite ammo and everything. So I could uh, see how you played it. And I had a fun time. You had a fun time. I'm imagining it was a very different time. Plus, you had the foreknowledge of map layouts in your head already. So oh, you yeah. kind of knew where to go and how and when and why. Oh, yeah. No. Which, by the way, I'm going to complain about this, both on, well, both on Leon's and, and Claire's runs. There's just a moment where the game says, well, duh, there's just like what that one chain you didn't cut. You got to go back and cut that chain to advance the game. But it's really not clear that it's in the downstairs left wing of the police station on the first floor. It's, it's if you happen to already know, it's easy. But if you don't, you're looking around for doors that were flagged as being keyed, etc., etc. In that same room, at least as Leon, you leave through a yellow ribbon indicated exit to cross through a window to the next room. You might not even bump your head against the door across the room, which has a chain on it. And yeah, you could say be thorough, but that was one of those stumbles where intuitively, for just a second, maybe like 15 minutes, I had some backtracking to do. And that, that slowed things down for me, because once you do remember, oh, duh, it's the one chain. The bolt cutters will probably flag as being used up, so you can discard them. The crank for the uh, the piston lifter is also in the next room, and the game just starts resuming along. You feel the discovery is there. But in an experience that's otherwise as reasonably tightly polished, except for the fucking rail car, but we'll talk about that later, <laughs> every, everything else just sort of clicks into place. And if I did not have a guide, those chess pieces would have been more upsetting. 
yes, you can figure it out, but it's a it's it's just ass grinding pace breaker. Not um, a huge fan. Yeah, no, I I did the I did what you did, so I got the infinite ammo and uh did no you go one... through a progression like used each weapon for a time or did you just skip to the 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 boom boom room oh i went i tried the the machine gun first not the minigun because i played leon a so that everybody's getting the leon a of this uh and then uh, after a few times killing some zombies i was like i'm gonna try the pistol and then i was like oh wait there's a minigun oh that's right he said there was a bazooka and I just grabbed both of them and just ran through the rest of the game that way. I, I switched off once. Uh, I didn't get hit until, like, in the laboratory, I believe. Like, very, towards yeah. the very end of the game. Cheapness can happen. And I know you've made peace with this previously, as I, as I had griped on the last session. But the game constantly tricking you by saying, Oh, good, you shot it with bullets, and now it's dead. But it'll be back later. To be further refined into the, the 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 plant find zombies that need to be incinerated to a certain degree after being killed necessitating you lug around the flamethrower and the weapon i get what it's going for and i can't say it's very satisfying so when you do eventually hit the skip combat button by pointing the anti-tank launcher at your feet ad nauseum guess what if it gets tagged by the weapon the after phase is already solved limbs are off or things are on fire you get to wade through the combat in a fashion that is just relaxing. I uh, I realized that the plant zombies at the end of the game that I if you just hit them directly with a missile from no matter where you're at they just catch fire. So it made it yes. super easy, and I'm just like, oh, cool. Um, but I had a blast, man. I was I I enjoyed it just for being like the uh, oh actually I started out with the minigun first. Um, it's it's a different game. Oh yeah, it's completely different. It, like uh, Mr. X doesn't have that. Like when I when it first happened, I'm like oh god, Mister X is gonna mess me up. I had to hit him three times with a missile launcher, and I'm just like, then he went down. I'm like, god damn, is this guy was gonna be the whole time? No, it's not. He's he he goes from Billy badass to like my ten year old daughter using that weapon. I'm just like, I could kick you across the room. Fuck off, Mister X. I'm now picturing your ten year old daughter in the trench coat, and the hat, stomping around trying to look very imposing. Yeah, but and then it, you just judo throw her. Except the only issue with her would be it would be like fucking uh, what the hell's the Donnie from goddamn Wild Thornberrys? And she's running at you because you won't shut the hell up. Love her to death. Don't get me wrong, but goddamn, that's equally unnerving. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but um, I would say, that can you see why I would still experience pressure or anxiety, even though I have the solution in my hands? But there's this big burly dude who's, if you get too close, he's going to punch you. And if he does, you take an owie, you'll probably survive it. It'll be fine. But you can't just stay in the room to appreciate the scuffed police table with a tasteful lamp and a half-eaten donut behind the desk. Nope, just got to deal with this. And you have between, what, two and five minutes before it starts stomping again. Uh, It just creates a pace. It creates a pace that is meant to be oppressive, and it's doing its job, and it's just—it's one of my least favorite things. I uh, I enjoyed it because I know where he's at, but I'm just like I'm playing as Claire now. That's what right before we started this, what I was doing. I'm like I want to see how Claire's second run is, and so I went. I'm like I'm gonna be Claire. I'm like okay, I'm gonna mess him up, and all of a sudden I'll hear him stomp, and I'm like wait for it, wait for it, missile boom. All right, now I got another two minutes, so I'm intentionally finding out where he's at and just fucking him up. Sure. Because I know all the codes except the statues that you have to get the medallions from to go to underground. 
Yeah, they switch it up on the second run too. They do, and you if you have them, you don't get the full book like you do in the first playthrough. Did I did I miss it? It seems like the camera film rolls only reward you with items once. The first three times, it's information. It's it's clues to where to unlock. Or the combos to unlock the safes and locks and such. It's only the last one that gives you two photos that if you check the appropriate desks, you will get weapon accessories or uh, unique collectibles for the characters. Is that accurate? Or is it yes, no, you're, you're accurate. Okay. This isn't and like that... uh, the RE3 when you go through and you get uh, photos and it's like, this is a zombie changing into this. Like, that's the one thing I liked about it. Like, they have like the beginning trailer to it. Um, you would see like pictures of like the video game trailer, then you go into the game, then you find some of the pictures from that beginning trailer. Uh, I like that about Resident, the original Resident Evil 3. The remake doesn't do it, but this one you are correct. It's, oh, hey, here's a photo. It tells me what the lion statue is. Here's a photo of where this is found. Um, there's an achievement. That's a bit of a goof. Yeah, go ahead. There's an achievement if you find the two secret roles and get the items that it gives you. I haven't done it, nor do I care, because um, I know one of the secret... Uh, Photos is Rebecca in a sports uniform, which they brought back from the original two. But in the original one, you had to search uh, Wesker's desk the whole time. You had to search it 50 times. Only the dedicated fans will know. Mm -hmm. But does it not feel to you that the game does have a closer, more intimate relationship with your firearms? So finding pieces for the Matilda for Leon, for example is it's a big relief because if you're playing the game as intended, you're always short on rounds and you want to do everything possible to make your solution tool more effective. So when you find that next slot, oh, my shotgun can carry additional rounds. Hallelujah, everything's better. That feels good. I would have maybe sprinkled in a equipment reward as the second roll that you find so that you don't know that you're not just going to get a hint about something you might have figured out already uh, otherwise. Because the, the weapon gear pieces are perhaps, at least for me, <clears throat> some of the most satisfying ups that you get in the game. Oh, yeah, no. The, when I played it, it's like I said, this is the first time I played it with Infinite Guns, so I normally play it with... You could unlock all these. I just was like, you know, I want to show people what he went through. Um, and I was like, I'm going to... I wonder how my experience is going to be. And I, I, like I said, I enjoyed it. So um, when you get those, though, man, it's super great when you get them. Those, like, the add-ons, the attachments and you're out of ammo for that weapon, and you slap it on like the extended clip, and all of a sudden now you have a miracle of 24 extra rounds that just popped in, you're just like, yes! You're taping a free rounds box onto your gun. It just feels nice. So I, I, I guess my question to you is, did it feel really weird to tell yourself, oh, I don't have to pick up the ammo. I just no. don't have to. Yeah, I remember though, I was playing RE3 and RE8 that way. Which way? The, the, with infinite ammo, I'd beat the game, and then I'm like, oh, okay, I got these infinite ammo guns. Boom, I can just unload out of nowhere, and I'll be fine. So uh, it wasn't a difficult adjustment for you? Hmm. No, I had... It's like psychological, because you have to suck up everything. You have to have just enough pockets available to pick up the next thing, and then combine with this thing. Oh, gosh, I can't do this. I have to run over to the room, dodge Mr. X, empty my pockets, run back, and pick up the shit that I... Wait, I don't actually need. Damn it. Exactly. I, I was able to... So if we go through the whole video... Um, it takes me two hours and 52 minutes. The video is three hours and 12 minutes. Unfortunately, there's going to be some pausing in between if you guys are watching this for this game. Um, sorry. Uh, I When I record these, I normally like to watch videos, and there's certain games on Steam when you alt-tab out that it'll stay playing or something. This one wouldn't, so it would shut the whole game down and pause it until mm. you click back. Um, 
So is this an opportunity for a famous nutchucks catchphrase? Sure, let's go for it. What will that? Well, I mean, that this this sure looks to be a speed run. Oh no, this is not a speed run. This speed runs in this game. You know what the fastest speed run in this game is? Something like twelve minutes. Something dumb. Forty-five minutes with Claire. Sure, but you have to remember the context of whenever Nutchuck says this is a speed run. The result is skilled, but in a different league than perhaps what uh, the expectation of the word itself is. Oh, correct. Uh, this time, though, I wasn't like, so this is how I would normally if I like this is what I would want to put up if I'm like, hey, it's a speed run like this is how you can do it really quickly um, using infinite ammo. Um, but uh, I didn't say it to myself, so I didn't have that pressure put on myself. So I uh, just kept playing. I just got hit by a dead body that falls off the pipe. Um, Gotta hit that flow. Yeah, so I was just like, hey, I'm, I'm cold, calm, and collected, so I don't have to worry about it. And I'm just here to put the video in, and all of a sudden I kept progressing. And I'm like, man, this is, like, I, 45 minutes in, I was pretty far. And I'm like, man, this has got to be like two hours. And I looked down, I'm like, oh, fuck, it's only been 45 minutes. So I kept going and kept going. When I finally got done, I was like, oh, shit, man, I might as well just play through the whole game. It was like two hours in, and I'm like, well, I uh, only got a little bit left. So I'll just go through and finish it. And it got me an S rank. So it's like, you unlock this un unlimited ammo bonus. And I'm like, thanks, guy. <laughs> like a little late, guys, but okay. Can you can you refund my $4, please? No? Okay, well, yeah. have a nice day. Now, I, was I will I'll complain that the true ending is not necessarily worth the effort. Are you talking about the second run through when you finally get a, you, you fight Blob G? I mean, the sequence is fun. But in terms of you got to see the true ending, uh, without spoiling too much, it's a family moment and it just codes nicely with the opening that involved a trucker. And I didn't feel there was any significant contribution to whatever the fuck that was. They're just redoing the ending of the second one. That's exactly how the second one ends. No, no, I, I believe you. I believe you. But outside of prolonging the game's span, outside of giving you more time to enjoy the thing that you enjoy, which, again, in my case, I had to modify heavily to enjoy, because it's it's not my genre outside of Dead Space, uh, to have said, let's replay this thing that I just played as Claire, but I'm playing as Leon, and the remix, again, smooths everything out, the run was perfectly fine. It was enjoyable. It was smooth. And then you get to what's supposed to be the next big click, and it felt underwhelming. Yeah, yeah, you got to uh, blow up a, a, a train made of teeth, but it didn't lead to anything satisfying. And uh, you just had to confront, oh, yeah, that's right, Resident Evil. The story is definitely window dressing. So one thing I didn't like about it, so in the original three, they expand upon what happens after to Leon and Claire. So three, here's how the story goes in three. It's 24 hours before Leon gets there. Jill gets infected. She falls asleep. You play as Carlos. Claire and Leon scenario happens. They escape. The lab blows up. Jill finishes it. And then the whole story comes out that like, oh yeah, once Jill and Claire or Leon and Claire escaped with Sherry, uh, they were all stopped by agents. And essentially they told Leon like either a, you let you become a special agent and work for the government or B we'll just take Sherry, put her in foster care and we'll arrest Claire for espionage or some shit. And he's like, God damn it. Okay. So that's the true ending you find out in three, but you have to beat hardcore, hardcore mode. 12 times to get all the endings for every character from 1 through 3. Because they go over Chris, they go over Jill, they go over Leon, they go over Claire, Sherry, uh, Barry, uh, Ada, 
And you're just like, holy fuck. And there's 12 different endings and Car- what happens to Carlos all after what happens to the end of the third game. And you're, they don't do it in the new one, the remake. But A couple of days ago, mm-hmm. I sent Nutchucks a video from a channel called XP to Level 3. The video was called, It's D&D, but everyone's 12. <laughs> we can just examine everything you just said. And it's not as bad as Hunter Hunter. But when you lay out the events without the affection for these characters or necessarily being feeling that their stakes are truly at risk, to add complexity, okay, but while, while this stuff was happening, everybody else was doing their stuff and they had adventures and one of them tripped and fell and broke their hands and somebody else came over and they had a tentacle arm, but they gave them the tentacle arm and they pulled out their eyes and then there was a tank and then, and then, and then Wesker shows up for some reason. You have to check his pockets 50 times and you're 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 losing me because we're adding steps and calling it complex well really the word is convoluted oh no i agree I guess it's convoluted we we can transition to uh resident evil 3 mm-hmm. which i subsequently also completed oh did you i have not uh, i don't own it on pc but i have beaten that game uh eight or nine times on xbox <laughs> i'm compelled i don't want to do it but i just have to do it uh yeah what what thoughts do I have? I definitely appreciate the pacing less. The opening third is effective in setting mood. However, with RE2, and I I know you're gonna say, well, it's like the like the original. The design choice to amp up the action by frequently, comparatively speaking, changing controlled character perspectives is a disservice to the game's pace because on paper yes everything is ramping up and depending how much you lick the walls and the furniture you spend a pretty good chunk of time as jill and you get to know the township more or less freely at first and then nemesis appears and i was honestly quite surprised at how nemesis was substantially more aggressive than mr x because i just come off of the pace of playing toro with mr x uh, Nemesis was not having that. He would be all too happy to leap and skid in front of me if I ran away or trip Jill up when she when she was trying to escape and just deliver follow-up attacks that cut into the stagger animation from being hit the previous time. So I was kind of surprised at how many deaths were involved. But that's just because I approached the enemy with a different logic than what the designers here said because the message is aggression. Aggression, 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 aggression. Fine. So be it. I can deal with that. But once you start hopping between Jill and Carlos, not only are you, I mean, if you're in, you're in, but you're juggling different inventories, slightly different weapons, slightly different rules. And they just, I appreciated it when it was a single cutaway for Ada Wong or for Sherry Birkin in game number two. I appreciated less when we cut scene to scene to scene. Uh, and the intervals are now becoming minutes apart versus being hours or days. It it's the twenty-four TV show kind of tension. Everything's intense and immediate. But at some point, instead of really being concerned about what's happening or why it's happening, it's okay, this is your seventh forced encounter with Nemesis. Um this time he has a bulldozer instead of his balls, and you have to get knock crushed by the tracks. Please look forward to the next phase of Nemesis where we stapled a whale to his uh goiter. So you will have to figure that out as well. Also, everything's on fire and has AIDS. It 
overstepped its exaggeration to a degree that I began to, again, lose investment. I can appreciate the technical aspects. Things look good. The characters uh, sustain appropriate amounts of cosmetic damage. At least with Carlos, it was actually... When hunters are introduced in the mix, it was very tense. Because they thrash around and cut and slash things quite more aggressively than the other enemies do. So... I had to do a little bit of door trickery, where instead of being across a highly chargeable room, and I wasn't using equipment, I could have been using explosives and sub-weapons, I didn't do that. My fault. It's... If you, put, if you tape the camera to the perspective of the hunter's face, these reptiloid, quasi-human, sharp-claw gremlins that are overgrown, if they were to charge Carlos, it would look like a 90s horror action flick where there's kind of a spinning effect as the camera closes in on the screaming commando firing full auto, and then it just cuts to black because they get beheaded. That happened a couple of times. But all the events and resolutions became far less effective, even though it was kind of neat to say, oh, look, Carlos is going to visit the, uh, the police station because they're in the same city, and it's 24 hours before, yada yada. It feels much more like pantering and fan service than it does a normal development. In, this, in the same way that a good example of using this revisit is a chapter in Dead Space 2 where the characters revisit the Ishimura, the setting of game one, for one level. And you don't expect it to happen, and if you're just playing the game on its own, it's fairly creepy. If you're playing the game as a, uh, a revisitation after playing the first game, you already have a lot of context laid into that place. And it delivers more than in Carlos's case, quickly just going through a section of the station. So in comparisons, I would say that I understand how 3 is a less satisfying experience than 2 is in totality. It has its strengths, but I was substantially less impressed with the writing and pace. Even though having those stand-up moments where if you attack Nemesis instead of running away, you will be rewarded with upgrades... Without a guide, it was super unclear when the stand-and-fight moments come in. Because you just really have no incentive to combat the guy. Instead of, unless you just want to spend resources. So, Chucks, what are your counterpoints to my observations? Uh, I, I think the biggest issue with 3, like you said, the writing is kind of silly. I don't like how they change certain things up. Nemesis, just random moments. Where, so, in the other one, Nemesis would hawk you down. So, if he showed up, Instead of being able to run away, like in this one, and it'll only chase you a little bit, like he's going to keep chasing you. Like it's not a random, like it's not like oh, I know he's coming out of this wall now. I might, I might need to fight. I'm gonna need to fight him because he's gonna drop something. It was first time you fight Nemesis. So in the original one, you can fight him seven times. If you beat him six of the seven times, you get infinite health at the last one, and you get a the last. I'm sorry, the last encounter. Last encounter, the okay. first three you get us you get parts to the super pistol that you get. It's I can't remember what it's called. Then you have the Western shotgun, which you get, which is like a, a lever action shotgun. No, um, hold on, hold on. Are you saying that on every encounter in the original game, if you defeat Nemesis or you reduce his health by a certain threshold, you mm -hmm. will get a reward? Yes. Okay, because in this one, based on what I read and mostly what I found the first two phase encounters, and by phase I mean to say you can cleverly use shotgun shot and explosive barrels to stagger him. He will drop a, a, a case that seems to encourage you. And you can go to a different room and he'll intercept you again. If you then fight him immediately, you get nothing. 
But if you navigate around him to the next set of cutscenes and developments, and then Nemesis reappears, that's considered to be a new phase, you will also get a briefcase. But only the first two briefcases contain weapon parts, as far as I saw. Everything else is consumables and ammunition that if you don't expend them to fight him, you will not need to replenish. So it's very muddled. Whereas the first game, or rather the original Resident Evil 3, you're telling me every time he appears and you rebuff him, you will get a permanent improvement for your character's arsenal. Yes, I'll accept the one time. Six out of the seven encounters you have. And the counters, too, they you know when it's an encounter because um, what happens is it comes up with a scenario that says stay and fight. So the first time you fight Nemesis in the original game, it's at coming into the RPD as Jill. And the remake, you don't really go to the... Well, you go to the RPD a little bit as Jill. Um, you... You know, you, you fight them out front. And it, it sh in this part, this shows you how Brad became a zombie in 2 because Brad is a super zombie in 2 and you get a special key to get all the custom outfits in 2 if you beat Brad, but you have to... It's starting again. It's starting again. It, He's it, saying these things. Yeah, so so in this one, Brad gets bit by a zombie. Then you, you when you play as Carlos, you see how Marvin got bit by Brad. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. And so in the original one, when you show up as Jill in the, the front one, you're like, oh, yeah, the RPD, and you're running to the door, and all of a sudden, Brad, you hear Brad behind her, like, Jill, wait, and all of a sudden, you see Nemesis he just come out with, like, his uh, hentai tentacle out of his hand, and he's like, stars, and he grabs Brad by the face, man. Like, this is a fucking iconic scene in my eyes, because one of the reasons why I love Resident Evil 3, original, he grabs him by the face, and all of a sudden, next thing you see is a fucking tentacle come out the back of his head, and he just tosses him aside. And you're like, Damn! And you're like, oh shit, Brad just got killed. And it's like, you can stay and fight, you can dodge and run, or you can choose nothing. So there's always technically three options. You can do nothing, you can stay and fight, or you can run. Uh, if you do it on, on uh, hard, hard mode, you don't have the assault rifle in the beginning for Jill. If you do it on easy, wimpy baby mode, it is uh, you get an assault rifle. I'm a little surprised there was never any customization parts for the rifle. Similar yeah, to, oh, here's Albert Wesker's pistol or a version of the Samurai Edge that is the original portal bottle. The game refuses to acknowledge it in any way outside of, it's in your hands, like in Village, where you were given an alternate pistol. It has no upgrade path. So intrinsically, as an experienced player, you understand that it's not long-term useful. Nope. Even though the rifle became very necessary because of the higher density of enemies being thrown our way, which I think the damage system was a little bit uh, redialed for this entry. It where was. dealing damage to the enemy is more important than shooting them in the knee or in the head. And I, I think the my biggest issue with 3 is that if you do a remake, it should be better. To me, though, the original 2 is only slightly better than the remake. Two, re, remake 2 is really damn good, and the graphics are a whole hell of a lot better. Um, my biggest issue with 3, though, is that it doesn't do any of that. It just goes, oh, okay, well, none of the iconic boss battles in certain spots are there. They're not as key as they need to be. Um, Nemesis isn't as terrifying as Mr. X, so they kind of dimmed him down. The writing's really stupid, but for Resident Evil, that's just, you know, Resident Evil to my eyes. Like, all the, the writing's kind of silly, but that's why I love the games, kind of. Um, so I, I, I have issues with 3. The pacing 
is way too fast paced for me in a survival horror game, but I get why they did it because this was even in the original one, that's kind of how it was set up to be like, we're moving to a more action packed. You're in the middle of a city. You got to be fast and you got to move and you got to do these things to get out of this city. So you don't die. And this one is just kind of like, okay, you sent me on a linear path that I can go to with a little bit of exploration. It's not really hard with after the second time playing it, I memorized all the codes. I memorized where I needed to go. And I like cut my time from the first gameplay from like six hours down to like two hours to three hours. Like I was hauling ass through everything. Like it, well, it, sure. Once once you're familiar, you know the shortcuts. It, it, whatever the mood is supposed to be after the first time through, it's gone. And I don't I don't know how well that really comes across for this game. So I know we're gonna use the the pillar of analog, which is uh, uh, <laughs> that rising actually also works too. But with Dead Space, even if you know what's coming, the environment design and the pacing is such that it still creates tension, at least in my eyes. As opposed to the RE games, new and old, the first time the tension is there because you don't know what to do. After that, very casually running past things or solving encounters with no emotional involvement is more frequent, I think. You're not playing for the spoopies anymore, just the cool bits where you're, you're Zero man. That's the one thing I think the remake two gets better than the original and the remake of three and three is that Mr. X keeps you having that tension no matter how many times you play this game if you don't have the infinite ammo weapons. Because you're like, yeah, fuck, it, I gotta dodge him. Oh god, the tension. Like, what do I do? Oh shit. And that's yeah, that, kind of how you play it. An effective mindfuck. Yeah. yeah. And you, I, you rationally know what to do, but you don't like having to do it each time. Exactly. And so. I, I give I give three. It's not a bad game, but it, it's got a it's it needed some improvements. It was way too short of a game. And you don't have multiple character campaigns, as far no. as I saw. No, you only have one. Um, Re eight. They did announce a DLC, so I was wrong. Um, they're waiting for the Re verse. They're gonna re like I said, they're releasing the Re verse here sometime next year, and then they're gonna have DLC. What they're gonna do for DLC, I don't know. But they they said. I don't know when the trailer was announced. I was watching the video on it, but they were like, hey, because of fan outcry, we're making DLC for RE8. And I'm just like, oh, cool. Like, dope. I want to see what happens. Is it? Is it? Because yeah. you didn't you didn't go back to RE7 DLC until your recent stream surge. They made more of the game you like. Yeah, I'll get to it. As opposed to, oh my gosh, I can't wait. Because really, either the game is so good, you will take however more there is, or the game, the base game, by design or by accident, is left with an unsatisfying ending, and then you have a purchasable complete chapter towards the end. Or, in the case of certain other games, like let's say Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus, that's pretty much an open and shut story. But we gave you three more DLC mini-campaigns that are all asset reuses, and there's characters we had to shoehorn in just to say, these are all the resistance fighters around the place. But your investment is... It's it's what exactly? Why would you care? It's more of the game. Well, I got everything I wanted out of the game, and apparently it's not even very good content. So it's just there for money. I didn't go back to RE7 for the DLC because I didn't even really know about it. So my thing was like, yeah, they are gonna they have all these special DLCs they're gonna do for the game, but the first one's free because it's taking too long. So Capcom went the first DLC is free. And that is No More Heroes, or not a hero, excuse me, No More Heroes is a different game. That's something else, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Resident Evil 7, no more Although, heroes. Just fucking... Honestly, f- who holds the rights? i got to find out who has tra- Travis Touchdown's rights. Because just having a, a first-person, uh, no more heroes segment, just because fucking who cares? Travis needs to get a paycheck t- today? That would have been great. Oh, yeah, no, I would have loved it. But uh, in the end, that's why I didn't go back to it until recently, because it never call- really called me back. Like, okay, I saw someone play it, and it wasn't... Oh, no. It's I... attached to Ubisoft. Oh, fuck. I it. forgot. <laughs> oh, that's right. The new one they released was Ubisoft. I completely forgot about that. But it never really called me back until, I, like you said, I went on the streaming binge. Then I decided, hey, I'm going to uh, play the DLC and have fun with it. And I enjoyed it. And I mean, it wasn't bad. Oh, those were very much mood setter episodes. Yes, one, I think the Chris one is canonical in terms of this is important to the story. Dubiously, but still. And the others were more about, here's some more flavor, excuse me, tidbits for the Baker family. And this is, the, the, the you know, the Saw films really had a lot of mood, so here's some of this. And here's uh, Joe McMillan, the super boxer. Uh, who will just punch out the mold that there were a serious problem for everybody else, but he's just so tough. He's a Louisiana kind of dude. Go ahead. Go. Go punch some zombos. I, I, I like that one. That one's... I, I enjoyed the story. It kind of closes up that the, the actual whole Baker story, and I'm like, oh, cool. Like, everything's but, closed out now. Like, you know what happened to Joe and Jack? Jack... Well, Jack and then Zoe actually did survive, and you know, Ethan kind of had a slight heart on for Zoe. Like, I told you I'd send help. Like, oh. Does okay. that are these pieces really important to the storytelling? No. As in, did it feel like they were missing from the game that you played? Mm-mm. Or somebody told you, hey, uh, yeah, so the survivor got like into a like a rehab clinic and then they you know got a job as a janitor, volunteer on the weekends. Um they still kidnap any kids, but outside of that, that's that's how their life went. Your response might be Okay, thank you for telling me. I'm going to discard this information now, but I appreciate the thoroughness. As opposed to a pivotal twist that recontextualizes things. Kind of like in Village, which I'm not, this is not a brilliant twist, but oh, Chris, how could you kill my wife? And then you find out why, and you just you sit there, your shoulders sag a little bit, you put the controller down, you stare, you purse your lips, maybe say something like, motherfucker. You don't appreciate the explanation, but on the other hand, it, it, it does settle an unresolved question. So you're left with, really, you did this? This is what you did? Okay, yeah, I'll play some more. So, uh, I don't know if you read all the... Uh... Sorry, hold on a second. I got this like little fly flying in my face. Um, Eat it. Eat it. Uh, no, it's a fruit fly. I don't know how the hell it got in the room. Uh, did you read the last letter, that, well, notes or message you get at the end of RE3? Uh, I was deeply surprised when I was playing RE2 Remake, and I went into Kendo Gun Store, which is uh, cheeky, because <laughs> sword fighting, gun fighting. And there was a letter, and I pick up the letter, and the game says, Aha! Here's a trophy for following in Jill's footsteps. And I thought, what the fuck? This I didn't do anything. I just... In the middle of the room, there's a piece of paper, and I look at it, and it says, don't worry, guys, I'm on the case. But you get nothing for Chris saying, I'm on vacation in Europe. <laughs> yeah. So getting whatever flavor note that is, to me, equates to an unwanted red-letter media segment when they're discussing contemporary writing for fan properties, like Star Wars. 
you probably know the meme. If you don't, Rich Evans, one of the guys on the show, he has a great like clarion call, annoying foghorn voice. And he went, I clapped! I clapped when I saw that! A-T-S-T! It's, it's all memes. I understand this. But that's about the level of satisfaction that we're after here. Ooh, the thing I like. You guys, you guys know. You guys know so well. Wow, I feel special. This, this has nothing to do with anything I like about it. I just want to let you know how dumb... Like, the, the, rail, the final boss, you, get, you fight him with that giant railgun. Yeah, that was actually pretty dope. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the name... To be fair, I, I did feel my pants move when the railgun was happening. Yeah. So the name of the railgun is their furrow magnetic infantry use next generation railgun or short finger. So if you read the document, it says whatever you're using, don't forget to give it the finger. Like, oh dear God, guys! Like seriously? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you got you guys are you're low hanging fruit there. Come on. You, oh, that's actually that's dead on the money. That's the reading level we're after. <laughs> that's that's what. I if you feel if you feel insulted. By that quality pun, I think you're putting on airs, sir. Oh, I, I think you think that this is more profound than it really is. I was highly disappointed with that one. I just I was shaking my head. I'm like, God damn it. Also, uh, you give it the finger by basically misusing the piece of equipment because railguns are typically not for point blank usage. Oh, no. But here we are. Yes, that, that's what we did. I, I like the original original ending where you, they kind of went back to that when you have to fight him in the Thunderdome part, Nemesis, where you have to hit him with the electrical thing and he falls down, then you hit him with the the acid. Um, but in the last hey, one, and hey, they, guess what? Mm-hmm. Boss fights are hard to design. They are. That, that's a complete truism. They are hard to design, and sometimes they pull them off really well. And some studios capitalize on boss fights because all they do is character action games, and that's when the shit works well. So, Everywhere else, take your choice. Puzzle or damage sponge. If you're going for both, it's going to suck. Well, it wasn't even damage sponge or anything. So in the original one, he's the top part of his, uh, his uh, S&M outfit is gone. And uh, so he's got all these tentacles flopping all over the place. you got to fight him. you got to lead him to these acid things. So when he swings, the acid comes out and an arm will fall off or his head will fall off and all this. But his body will keep coming. So if you get both arms and his head gone, he has nothing to hit you with. So you can just... Uh, I disagree. Keep, He's got his body to hit you with. You can, that could do some damage. Well, it could. You could keep fucking with him though, and uh, and just keep moving around. But uh, I I I like that. And then all of a sudden, when you fight him again, it's that ending part where you have to fight the railgun. But Jill does give the fucking funniest line of all time. Uh, oh, at the end of the original oh you walk that shit back. You walk it back right now. Oh, it's not the funny. What do you line. actually mean to say? It, it is the it is the dumbest line. One of the dumbest lines of all time. Let's settle on it's a very memorable line for all the wrong reasons. Can we say that? Oh yeah, it definitely is. So she looks at okay. him. She has her magnum out. And she's like, "Stars, I'll give you stars," and just blast his ass. And I'm just like, "This is the original one." And I'm just going. I was like ten when I first saw this. I'm like, "God damn, that's bad." Like even a ten year old me was like, "Oh, that's shit! <laughs> like that's terrible." The the poor voice actors. Yeah. Do you want me to say what? Okay. How do you want me to say it? Wow, like that, huh? Oh no. So the only well, the, I'm on the first plane back after this is done. So the only person who kept so she it wasn't the original Jill from the first game who did the three. The only person who kept maintaining the same role role throughout the series was uh. Claire. Claire was Claire up until um, this game. 
Uh, it was Allison Cord. If you don't know who Allison Cord is, she did a uh, big comfy couch. She was the clown girl who sat on the couch. Allison Cord with a C or a K? Uh, C. Oh. Uh, uh, she played big comfy couch. She played the clown. And uh, yeah, she did the movies too and everything. So, but yeah, she's she was the only one, and then they got rid of her, and everybody was so disappointed. Like, how could you not bring her back? And it's like, well, it's they're going with a whole new remake. Like, so the way I look at Resident Evil, there's the remake universe, which has RE1 remake, RE2 remake, RE3 remake, and when RE4 remake comes out, that will be involved. And then you had the mainline universe, which is the original games. I suppose I understand. At the same time. I'm trying to be as charitable as this as possible because I respect the attachment of fondness that somebody can have for a property because it speaks to them in a certain way. Well, but I get it. It's almost like I want to temper down the volume of the the fan appreciation, but that also seems kind of gatekeepy. Because yeah, you were a big fan of things and say this is this was impactful to me in my childhood, and I say yeah, but listen to it now. Do you? Are, do you sure you want to be as loud as you are about this? Because you can say, I appreciate this voice actor. I really like what they did, and I'm glad that we're able to do the work that they could do. And it sucks that for production reasons, uh, they were then separated from the character they, they breathed life into. Because uh, Chris Judge does a pretty mean Kratos. Does a very good Kratos. Mm-hmm. Also a big departure from previous Kratos. But that work still exists, and I'm not sure what the relationship of the resentment is, or acceptance or appreciation from the original voice actor. That's like uh, when but, everybody got butt hurt from uh, Kiefer Sutherland doing Metal Gear Solid Five. Like, yeah, how, how could you get rid of that guy? And I don't remember the original actor's name. And then you, you go with Kiefer Sutherland, like, but it's not fair. And it's like, yes, but it's not the snake that we know. It's completely different. It's a different person, so that is fine. But that's a super late stage twist. To the point where you have to eat a significant portion of what is described as a shit sandwich until it's explained. Then then you have to basically decide whether you're on board or not. Because it is Kojima, after all, so there was a purpose there, just Kojima needs editors badly. And yeah, the fan outrage is based on the picture that's presented. Because everyone's winking along like, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, same guy, absolutely, yeah. And then when it's not the same guy, you go, ah, ah, got you! But instead, you get contrition and disappointment as opposed to excitement that, oh, you really got me. Like when the title card drops in Nier Automata 50 hours into the game, you got me. That's a good moment. That is, I did, I did not expect this to happen. Holy shit, I'm invested. But at the same time, you've already been through it for a good enough length of time. You might have been taken off guard. And I can say this and not say spoiler because you have no context of what I'm talking about. I don't. Uh, original voice actor of Kratos, by the way, is T.C. Carson. T.C. Carson. What a dude. What a G. Yeah, I liked his voice acting, but I think what I've heard and what... Uh, oh, what the hell is the guy who did the new God of War? He did the second one, too. Wasn't it Chris, Chris Judge? Mike Judge? Ben Judge? No, Tim no, not Judd? voice acting, but I'm talking about the director. Oh, Barlog? Yeah, Corey Barlog. Okay. And uh, he was like, T.C. Carson's not that tall. He couldn't do what we wanted for Kratos. So and he, that, that, that's fair, but it's just we don't know what the process of creating this piece is. We just we know it's attached to a license, and that is a really that's a deeper subject that we're not really equipped to discuss, which is you're selling people on the appeal of a recognizable property. 
and this is the ship of Argos. Nothing about this is like what it was before, but it's trying to fool you that it is. So, when you're inevitably disappointed, it's important to explain why that might have been. Almost like the ship of Theseus or the George Washington Axis paradox. Did I did I mistake the reference? I, I meant that vessel. I said Argos. It might have been the ship, yeah, ship of Theseus. They, they are they are the Argonauts. Jason, oh, that's Jason and the Argonauts. But the ship of Theseus, yeah. Well, there you go. It could be the same thing. It'd be what, any ship you want it. What the fuck are you busting my balls for? It, well, no. Well, Argos was Jason and the Argonauts because they were named after the ship. But Theseus yeah. uh, was the uh, one who fought uh, the Minotaur. Well, you know those those Cretans. They're all they're all crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was mistaken, and you're welcome to exploit that. Yeah, yeah. Founder of Athens. I think he slays the Minotaur. Yeah, brush up on your uh, mythology there, dude. Yeah, Theseus and the Minotaur. And that's why it's called the Aegean Sea, because his dad jumped off uh, a cliff into the sea, and that's where, because his name was Aegeus. Because he why did, was forgot... it important? Huh? He's he's not the only one to have taken a deep into the sea forever, so why was Aegeus important? Uh, it's just because it's based off the story, essentially. I know, but let's, let's, let's really... Okay, if Theseus possibly got enormous acclaim because he did the Minotaur thing, which was supposed to be impossible, did he also then say, yes, and now I dedicate the sea to my late father who fucking died in it? Well, and people said, well, you're famous, I guess. Yeah, let's do that. I'm assuming that's how it happened, but the reason his dad killed himself, I think it was in dedication to him killing himself because he fucked up. So, right. Yeah. But I, again, if, if the dad was important and then the sea claimed him, people went, oh no, and then they named the sea. That's that's somewhat likely, but instead we get now that I'm rich and famous, we're gonna change some things around here. Okay, <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. the point doesn't matter too much. I just find it very amusing. Like, oh yeah, known for man who drowned. <laughs> uh, many men have drowned. Some deliberately, some otherwise. Some with sacrifices. So what are we dealing with here? I, I just, I, I just, uh, I like the story just because it's like Theseus was partying a little too much, you know, banging his new wife, and. Uh, he he shows back up on shore with the wrong wrong sail on, and all of a sudden his dad's like, "Well, Bucker died." Ah! He comes back. He's uh, like, "Well, I got to do something." Wait, uh, is, sh- is this where is is this where Greek tragedy originates? It may. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I believe that it originated with Oedipus, but you know that's just me. Because that's that's where. Just a- at what point do we say, and now Greek culture exists? The same story. Because right after he finds out everything, well, this is cool. All right, I'm going to go blind myself and wander off. Kids, have fun with your mom, who's also your aunt or your grandma. See you later. So it was a tragedy, comedy, and starting of Greek <laughs> Greek <laughs> culture all at the same time. Just like the is it me Jesus line that began two traditions. I, uh, speaking of Jesus, I, I don't think we were talking about Neil Gaiman a couple episodes ago. Have you seen American gods? No, I've not seen it, have but I do it? believe I have the book and I've had it for about six years and I really got to get or read it, but that has not happened yet. Yeah. I, I, I get a kick out of it because there's, because, because of gods, there's multiple Jesuses and uh Mexican Jesus gets off in like the third or fourth episode. But comes back. I believe it. Because he was helping people across the Rio Grande, and there was a bunch of assholes killing illegal immigrants across the Rio Grande, so they kill Mexican Jesus. 
I feel like it's the Miko. Uh, Miko, turn the other cheek. Adele. I I feel like it's the uh, robot chickens, like the the Cyclops smashing Jesus. Like seriously, we're gonna yep. keep doing this. We're gonna, we're gonna keep doing this. Okay. We're gonna kill you, Christ! Oh, you guys. That's Jesus. That's, I mean, deeply disrespectful, but at the same time, I Boys. feel if the exaggeration is sufficient, then the joke still works. Oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of two things, one, God of War, mm -hmm. the original trilogy, was going to end with Jesus. I don't know if you remember that. We discuss mm -hmm. it every now and then. And two, uh, I had completely missed the association that Bo Billingsley, the voice of Jet Black from Cowboy Bebop, the English dub, that I had mistakenly attributed to T.C. Carson, also voiced uh, Barrett, apparently, in the Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I just did not pick up on that, which either suggests that over 25 years your voice changes in your voice acting, or it was so seamless that I didn't even think, yeah, okay, cool. Dude, they found a good one. I wonder who it is. He, so what? He is old, but this motherfucker looks like if Mike Tyson, instead of went into boxing, was a voice actor. Oh, he's a handsome man. He's a mix between Mike Tyson and LeVar Burton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. Wait, like, put put the goggles on him. The goggles on him? I could give give him the mono eye. If you if you gap his teeth out a little bit, you know, you'll you'll you'd see it. <laughs> I mean, now picture your choice of Barrett Wallace or Jack Jet Black saying, I'm gonna fuck you till you love me. Just just picture that and have him mean it. Uh because, you know, that's that's the famous Mike Tyson line. I thought it was his fa most famous line was, I'm going to fade to Bolivia. Do you mean Boli <laughs> Oblivion? Yeah, Bolivia. Like, okay, clearly you're hyped up on a lot of coke right now, Mr. Tyson. And especially with that face tattoo. Hey, he was a style pioneer. He was. It was like a tribal tribal thing he got on the side, left side of his face. And he's just like, okay, well, to each their own. Like, I'm not judging Mike speaking, Tyson. Speaking of tribals and famous African-American personalities, mm -hmm. has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Uh, I started playing something that I'm about six, seven hours into overall that I have some impressions on. What it's game a game that I've, I've put off because I really enjoyed the first game in the series, and I mostly enjoyed the second game in the series, and then they announced the third, and I said, you lost me. This is this is brand development bullshit. Everyone loves Fallout 4. I don't know about this. And that game is Metro Exodus. Uh, How much knowledge do you have about Metro Exodus? That I once called the Stalker Metro. That's about it. And that's that's pretty good. Yeah. So perhaps the fairest assessment I can give this game in its incomplete state that I haven't finished yet is uh, Slav Cry. Because the Slav feels and a Far Cry formula much of the time. And I'm not happy with all of its decisions, but I very much appreciate the little touches. So let me try to explain. I am playing in the Russian dub, and the Russian voice actors, by and large, are pretty good. Because the characters, at least previously in the series, had portrayed a lot of personality within how their lines are written and how they delivered them. It's very colorful. It's very rich. The downside is, this is known, and the characters won't shut up in this iteration. Like, let's say there's a hub and they're milling about, and 
you can walk up to them and say, oh yeah, player character. And they just maybe do a summary of what you just experienced together, or maybe a concern, maybe acknowledgement. And then as soon as that loop finishes, somebody else walks up and goes, oh yeah, were you guys talking about this? And then they talk about it some more, and then they turn away from you. Somebody else across the room says, oh yes, Uncle Artyom, did you remember this? And just, it sort of, it chains conversations in a clumsy way, where it's not partitioned well enough. When scenes happen, the scenes are enjoyable, but when it's everyone has a few voice barks to fill in the acknowledgments of what occurred, the gesture is appreciated, but they just continue talking. As an example, you have certain activity points where you can, there's a prompt to light up a cigarette. And if you do that, the other person smoking will start talking to you. But they will have like five fragments of what they're saying. <laughs> so basically, either you as a character, if somebody's looking at you, it's just, just yeah, man, taking drags, taking drags. It's been eight minutes. When, when are you done? I want to stop smoking, please. I want to finish speaking. Please don't loop into another start. Or just go, hmm, yeah, cool, new truck, fantastic. I got to go now. So it's, it's really weird to feel this way. The game, the game's first hour is establishing and familiar because you're dealing with metro subway stuff in Moscow, the flavor setter. And it sort of reintroduces you because this is the third game in the series and the main, main character has been consistent. Uh, they're quick to point out this is inspired by Metro 2035 as opposed to based on. So this is a different story, and you can feel it. But then something amazing happens. Because, Chucks, I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of games that aren't a train sim genre that involve trains in them in a significant fashion. But more often than not, when a train is involved, it's a pretty cool train. Yeah. Do you remember Assassin's Creed Syndicate? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the train hideout? Yes. How much did you dig that hideout gradually filling out and reacting as you adventure? I, I liked it because it gives you a, a feeling of progress at the same time you're looking at it. And it's like, oh, this is kind of nice. Like, this is a cool, neat concept. Yeah, you... classic, classic hobo. Yeah. Sometimes in action games, the train is a level. And it's you can fuck it up. But it's kind of difficult to do it because you have just a few tricks you have to pull in terms of combat encounter, density, traversal, what's whizzing by you as you do it. Uh, this pulls train off really well. First of all, because the train represents something that the characters simply did not have access to before. A way to go. Everyone was stuck on rails under the ground with the metro system. But here the characters find a way to, well, they got to get out. Something happened, they got to get out. And they find this place with a, uh, what's the word? The caboose is the last car. The tractor, I guess? The actual, uh, this, the, 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 the tin can full of water that you have a fire underneath and you throw coal at it and it goes choo-choo? Yeah, that. The locomotive. There you go. We found the word, everybody. Good job. So, you can't have the train without a conductor. Because everyone involved in the main cast are survivors and soldiers. They don't know shit about trains. You find one. And you cram in seven people into the cabin of the locomotive. And they know that they can get away. But this is no way to continue for a long time. You can do it. You can rough it. And the game does a really good job, I feel, of spatial management. By saying we can sort of cram in a table right here, put a radio set on there. Uh, maybe 
try and set up shop next to the coal room to maintain weapons, it has good attention to logistical detail that makes this, uh, let's call it rust punk environment really work. Because everything around you is either scavenged and improvised, and most of it is made on 50-year-old Soviet technology. We can still make it work and run, but everything is improvised as much as possible. And in a fairly short order, you get the option to encounter other pockets of society that have developed elsewhere in the what was considered to be an uninhabitable waste. But apparently the life has a way, so interesting new sub not subspecies, but like societies and cults have taken over whatever humanity was left and imposed new orders, including a fanatical society that lives in bogs and worships a giant fish. Because fuck technology, technology ruined the world, the fish knows what's up, it will guide us towards wisdom. The fish is not intelligent, it's just a big, mutated catfish. But what else are you going to build your religion on? There's no holy saints going around, let's worship the fish, and condemn technology. So, where this leads is, you encounter some decent people who want to help you, uh, mother and daughter. And this is kind of where I haven't looked at the scripting to find out, but there seem to be quiet, branching decisions in how you either choose or execute choices in this game, where I don't know if the mother and daughter are supposed to come with you guaranteed. But, and I'm going to try and pitch you this picture, Chucks, your locomotive is parked on a set of railway, well enough away because you can see there's a blockage, there's a bridge that's raised, you can't get through, so you're parked a ways away. And you're told, okay guys, disperse, uh, you look for supplies, you look for a signal, and then you look around see what's happening. After you accomplish one of those side missions, because you're given a map, a Far Cry-like map, to say, here's some points of interest. Grab some binoculars, find a high space, map the shit out, and then go explore if you want to, or just focus on the main mission. So you have an activity hub. If you come back to the train, where it's stopped after a little while, the crew have set up a bench and some canvas half-tents and an overhang, an awning. And it's a purely cosmetic gesture, but it really helps sell the idea that you've been here for a bit, but it's still light enough that you can pack up and leave when you need to. Well, you can't cram more people into the, into the uh, locomotive anymore. But we happen to know or find out that the bandits nearby are, they, in their possession, they have a train car that's sitting in a hangar. It's being used as a squat hotel, if you want. Mm -hmm. We would like to get that car, but we can't move the train over there. But there is a guy who lives in the area, and he has another tractor, a smaller one. So what if we convince the guy to lend us the thing to get the bandits to get the rail car, and then get to drive the rail car in a little sub-segment? And it's not very well polished, but I really appreciate the gesture, because after all the hoofing and shooting and etc. that you do, just grab a seat in a powered vehicle and run it on the tracks, stop, figure out how the switches work, and then coast the car up to where the train is. It, it just feels good that you basically brought, brought a rolling house to your team and everyone's spirits are lifted because, yeah, the situation is bullshit, but now we have some way to settle into a somewhat of a comfortable environment. And then, of course, you get another task. Go over here, help figure out how to get this bridge down. And when that's resolved, the bridge opens up. You have to hop onto the bridge, or excuse me, from the bridge onto the train, but now you have your you have a car in the middle to land on. And when you settle in, all the characters that are with you so far have found a well-represented way to occupy the space, make it their own, express joy about, holy shit, we actually have a faucet now if we want to, and there's a, a proper place to sort store the guns and maintain them, etc. It just feels so good and lived in. And, I don't know if you knew this, Chucks, but Russia is a fucking big place. 
Now what's it? So it's some like four thousand miles from each side or some shit like that, isn't it? But big, bigger than the US. Yeah. So you get this big hub of shitty swampland. That's your first larger spread out space, the Far Cry space. And the game will take you through a narrower flavor section in the middle to another activity space that happens to be closer to Kazakhstan. And the won't you know it, the scenery changes and new challenges come up, such as after a couple of engagements here and there, we're running low on water and the boiler needs refitting. What I did not expect here is a consistent and very satisfying degree of costume changes for your team and crew, because these are military guys who know how to work their gear, but they also have to adjust for temperature. And our Russians don't like heat that much, not really. So everyone starts bitching, coming down with things when you're in this region. So who does what and what's available also rotates, and it becomes a pretty serious plot point that we have to get the people off the train because they're overheating into this concrete structure, we have to, again, pack up the shit from the train inside to make a little hovel, and then use guys who can still stand and fight. We have to find a way to get some water. That's that's the big problem for us, and maybe we can negotiate retrofit parts from a local tribe. Yes, they're fetch quests, but they're so satisfyingly tangible when they persist. The number of players and people involved, you can count them, and their personalities start coming through, whether they blather to you or not. The objectives are very sensible, and whenever you have the complication for complication's sake, for example, uh, fairly early on, I, this is going to sound a little resonant, uh, your father-in-law, who is the colonel to whom you report, uh, and is the father of the woman you're married to, who is also part of the order, so he's got serious daddy power over you, uh, and doesn't want, wants to make sure that his little girl doesn't hurt, get hurt. Uh, he's a continuous character through all the games so far. He has come into new information that he found out only six months ago, which is why I didn't tell you, is that there is a damping network of radio sensors around Moscow to suppress any signals interacting, so we weren't allowed to know there's a bigger world out there. Hence, the train stuff starts happening. But he is really committed that we have to get to Central Command, who's been there the entire time. And once we get there, it'll be a great honor. Uh, he did some shit that technically requires court-martialing, so we have to go there and negotiate with upper command to make sure that the surviving members of this military group are pardoned, and we can improve the circumstances for those who are living underground in the subways, because just freeing them isn't enough. Where are they going to go? Uh, this is only chapter three or so, so guess what? You get to the bunker, and you're let in, and uh, what do you suppose happens, Chucks? Uh, you get ambushed. By who, Chucks? Uh... Cult leaders? Cultist? You know, I, I will take that as a valid guess. Not cultists necessarily, but cannibals. Okay. Because we're, we're dealing with tropes of the wasteland, right? This is not necessarily a surprising turn, but it is a very embittering turn because that this is this old fighter's big chance at redemption and resolution. But fucking, of course, there's people who are trapping survivors and subsisting on meat. Uh, from human bodies, and by the way, we're discussing prions now because they're losing their shit little by little, but they're still sufficiently problematic that you got to fight your way out. And in a very clever uh, application of acid reuse, the party characters comment, hey, this bunker's built like this other bunker that we were in a couple of games ago, so the layout's kind of the same, we know what to do, and they dispatch each other to, to fight your way through that, which could come off as cheap, but they're rolling it really well. 
you barely notice that this kind of looks like the, the place where you were in a game from a few years ago, if you're paying attention. If you're just playing this straight, it's an industrial Soviet military bunker. What else do you need to know? So now we come down to the gunplay and the tension within the ethos of that. Because, I don't know if you know this, Chucks, Metro is a series that is very concerned with humanity. And by and large, killing people is considered to be a problem. But you have to decide for yourself whether or not you consider anyone who might encounter you as people. Because it can totally see FPS fans gunning down everybody. Do you know why? Because the gunplay feels good. Because bullets hurt people, and it's kind of fun to discharge your munitions at the opponents. Also, a little sadistic, because one of, your, one of your guns is a pneumatic ball-bearing gun. It shoots ball-bearings. They're only lethal in one shot if they enter the skull. So when you have people running at you, and you have to pump five, six, seven balls into them, and they stagger, and they're clearly affected by it, but they're not stopping... It's 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 pretty sadistic to keep firing with that particular gun. But hey, it's quiet, so maybe you'll brain them when you do it. The level of gun porn is incredibly satisfying. By which I mean, sort of Red Dead Redemption 2 style, you do have a cleaning mechanic where your gun's stats will drop if it's not maintained, and there's crafting benches that are reasonably plentiful that you can go through many areas and maintain your guns. But when you find components, you can strap it to multiple classes, for example, there are two flavors of pistol ammunition guns. There's so far two flavors of shotguns, two flavors of assault rifles that you will find the base frames for. And when you take them back to your train, that gets added to the armory. And at these benches, you get to swap out stocks, barrels, optics, magazines, things like that. They all look really good, by which I mean they look shitty in the best way. Because maybe for tight maneuvering, you have to take your Kalashnikov frame, as it's called Kalash in the game. And you have to just strip it down to wireframe because you want the, the twitchy flexibility to make this weapon work in tight spaces and maybe put on a flashlight or a, uh, a laser dot sight. And it will look appropriately stripped down. But if you think to yourself, well, I have found this six-time magnification scope. What if I put on a heavier stock and extend out the barrel a little bit and do this compensator? The weapon just it looks good. All the pieces look well-modeled, appropriately strapped together. It's believable. And then you get to the really silly <laughs> improvised weapons, like you have your single-tube breech-loading shotgun. I mean, simple as nails. It has a trigger, has a handle, has a breech-loader. You pull the trigger, particles scatter, the fucker goes away, hopefully, right? And then you get your first mod that you find, which is a double-barrel mod, double-barrel breech. Your shotgun looks pretty different. It looks silly stacked up, especially if you put another side on top, which is like an open holographic, so it looks really low and high-tech, which is why I say Rust Punk, because it's very charming, and guess what? It handles like a dream. It's satisfying to whip that out. Yes, you do have a higher-capacity shotgun that you find, but I still lean to the breech loader because it just it's smoother. It's satisfying. You feel well-equipped for tight spaces. And then the game rewards you at some point by finding a quad barrel option that fires two at the same time, and yes, you kind of know it's silly, but you also think to yourself, well, I do need stopping power because these, these monsters and these people are, are problematic for me. So, at least I do. I get excited about finding new gear to scavenge because it's not always a linear upgrade. Yes, a bigger capacity magazine is advantageous because you can carry more of the rounds in your magazine. 
but there is an overheat mechanic, which, as annoying as it is, doesn't come up too often. So maybe you want fewer shots at a time and you want to pick up. Because sniping is viable, medium-range combat is viable, up-close is viable. But the crux of the matter still is, how much does the game care about how many lives you end? Because even when you have a takedown option, immediately you have lethal and non-lethal. I personally try to go non-lethal whenever possible. Because the game also has a condition in many encounters that you face where if you are facing 10 people and you disable or kill seven of them, the remaining three might say, okay, I quit. Here's my weapon. Please don't kill me. I'm done. You as the player can decide, yeah, fuck them. They're bandits. I don't care. You can kill them all. You can knock them out. You can leave them alone. You can have these decisions. Because I do believe the game is keeping score. Because apparently there's different endings that could happen. And at least so far along the way, based on the checkpoint rewards that you get, two of the characters that I have in my party should not have stayed with my party. The game was prepared to kill them. But because of how I acted, one way or another, I got to keep them, and the reward is they get to keep chat chatting to me and possibly being available elsewhere. So we're doing a Mass Effect 2-style suicide mission. Possibly. And I'm willing to forgive a lot of the clumsiness, a lot of the bugs, a lot of the texture challenges, because this is a game that is trying to squeeze out a lot of graphics and output. It does a good job because the textures of the familiar human objects are very satisfying. The lighting is good. The sound is good. I, my gripes are mostly with execution, not the intent. I'm interested to see where it's going. I'm not necessarily extremely invested in the story, but I do like the telling. And it's got this Slav, Rust, Punk, consistent aesthetic that makes it believable that you can get along with just whatever you can get your hands on because you're so capable and crafty that it might still be useful. I, I dig it, but I haven't finished it yet, so I'm not sure what the final experience is. I do think it's bloated compared to the previous Metro games, which were exclusively pivoted on your character and maybe one or two people that they encounter. And the affairs were a little more supernatural and a little more political. Whereas this is very much a, well, we've got to save our family, right? Simpler story. But I'm having a unexpected but really satisfying meta time. Even as I sometimes say, okay, well, go to this part of the map, get in the car, get out of the car. Oh, it's a monster hole. Oh, it's got a chest there. It's got a part. Great. Get back in the car. Drive for the next one. Those parts are repetitive, and those parts did not exist previously in the series. So I, I can accept the Far Cry elements for the value they contribute. And that must have been like 15 minutes of me talking. So do you have any questions or impressions or whatever? I do not. I, I... Do you feel... Go ahead. It sounds like a game I'm going to have to play. Like, I want to see how it compares to the RE games. In my eyes. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, first of all, the dialogue's good. So, there. That That's a contrast point you can't take back. It It's a different feel. It's It's less spoopy here. Because it's not out to creep you out nearly as much. Because the world is not as new to our character. They are seasoned. They went through two adventures that should have been... Like, they should not have survived. But they made it. So it feels earned that you are more of a combat-oriented machine. And because of the extra room it gives to play around with, it feels a little closer to the remake of 3, where action will be consistent, and there's a lot for you to enjoy and discover. But the pacing is such that 
There's a you played some Fallout Fallout Four, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you will recognize some of that, where a part of you is just sweeping the room with a Hoover, picking up everything as scrap, creating a nebulous pocket of resources that at first seems tight, but then becomes plentiful, where you just consume that to make ammunition, polish your weapons, etc. Like, those parts, I understand, I accept, and I forgive, because that's just kind of what the market dictates that it wants in its games. Whereas uh, Metro 2033, the first game in the series, likely feels kind of bizarre and antiquated because it doesn't reward the player all that much. And the sensibility is, so I shoot them all, right? And the game says, I really wish you wouldn't. Okay, cool, I'm going to shoot them all. Hey, why'd you give me the bad ending? Stuff like that. Gotcha. But I think you would get a lot out of it, at the very least for the Russianisms. But I, I consistently find little patterns and choices in translation that I, I think this was a primarily Russian-speaking team translating into English, as opposed to having an American translate it, because they're just little idioms in terms of phrase. Tiny things, like there's a legacy submachine gun in this game, and it is, it's it's not a good weapon compared to what else is available, but it is a solution in case that's what you need to use. It's a pistol caliber submachine gun. The reason I bring it up is, in English, it is called the Bastard. Because apparently it's 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 a bastard of a weapon that jams up, etc. It, it, it's an affectionate but mostly pejorative name. Well, in Russian, that word is suchka. But suchka translates to little bitch. And it's actually significantly more affectionate than it sounds in English. But I can totally see how the cultural interpretation of little bitch as a submachine gun might just not come across. So they, they swerved entirely to give you something else. And I noticed that but this is coming from the guy who noticed that the set of pistols and Destiny were called Sturm und Drang, and there's just there's no way the connection will be made on the level that I made because that's not the audience playing this shit. So it's curious, it's kind of disappointing sometimes, if only because I understand what the nuance is in spoken Russian and I'm reading the English subtitles, which is kind of a mindfuck too, and I just see things slip through, like oh that's not what he said, nope that's not what he said. That's that's not what he said. Your sentiment as a player, if you're following along, might be significantly different than what you're able to interpret in English. And maybe at some point I'll listen to the audio dub and see again how different it is. But uh, there's an interesting note I really enjoy. Um, it's racist, but it's the best kind of racist. One of your team members on your squad is a man named Sam. And apparently Sam was on loan from the United States government as a Marine when the conflict started. So he's been stuck in Russia all this time. So he speaks Russian to you guys, but his name is still Sam. Uh, Sam's Russian, and I haven't checked it in English, but Sam's Russian clearly reads foreigner. But it is not an American speaking Russian. No, this is a Russian man speaking Russian badly, which is like the faintest whiff of blackface that I can think of because it just suggests oh no, the poor deer didn't learn to speak it. It's like Measurehead speaking English. Yeah, you you understand him, but he's not speaking in a way that a normal or educated person would, if that makes sense. No, no. And I don't find it to be offensive. I find it very curious as a choice because it comes across like yeah, you're not from around, but we'll love you anyway. It's cool. You're part of the team. What's somewhat more problematic, and yet again, I just I smile and just say, okay, I see what you're going for. The U.S. people would not like this. The 
indigenous populations of the region of Yamantau, let's call it somewhere in Kyrgyzia, why not? They also speak Russian, but they speak immigrant Russian. And by immigrant Russian, I mean to say their conjugations are all fucked up, especially gender conjugations, which if you're a native speaker or you're a student of, you would understand that some words conjugate in a certain genders, and that is just how you speak, and they have their inherent properties. So when someone, let's say a girl, refers to the self in the male conjugation, you really notice. And at the same time, the whole post-apocalyptic thing works because they are actually illiterate, and they're getting passed down ruins of a culture as opposed to having direct texts available, and they're living in the desert, and they're slaves. But boy, oh boy, I don't think the American audience would appreciate the finer tunes of, oh, right, you made the Asians talk broken Russian because they're just uneducated and stuff. Cool. Even your strong female character that is a capable freedom fighter for her people, don't, don't speak either Russian too good. I would imagine that would be problematic in the current context of things, even though I see what the, the writers and the, the producers are conveying. And in a bizarre way, this is, this is a story that has inherent context of where it's being told and who it's being told by that isn't meant as a fence but could come across that way. So yeah, discrimination based on spoken language. How do you feel about that? I mean, different places have their things, man. I'm not gonna... I mean, it doesn't bother me. Well, sure, but do you find it amusing? Do you feel like, oh yeah, the portrayal makes sense? It does. Or, well, talking I'll, to you, I'll, yeah, it it makes sense to me. The way that me and you, when talking about Russia, you you would mention stuff like that. Like that makes sense. It doesn't. It's not going to shock me as much as it would as like a, an American person. Like, oh, There's this, they're they're hating on this guy and this group of people because of their accents and the way they're speaking poorly. Like, okay. Like, to me, that's no big deal, but to somebody else, they may be like, oh my god, I can't believe they put that in a video game. As a piece of commentary, what is also potentially problematic, but again, I see what's being done here. In the region where the poorly speaking people are, clearly, differently speaking, but also they're portrayed as being not necessarily of Slavic stock. That's okay, though. Uh, there's a dude in the area. And he's, he's funneled all the power into his organization so that his tribe, his bandits, run everything. Uh, if you make it to his sanctum, you will find that there is female entertainment in the sanctum. Which is fine. In fact, the pole dancing is a reuse from the previous game. So again, you got some tools, work with them. It kind of makes sense because we're seeing that these are bullies, they're degenerates, they're just they're enslaving women and treating them badly. The one thing I have to point out is the majority of the slave workforce they have are bedraggled, lean, tired, dust-caked people. But the pretty ladies are perhaps a little bit too pretty, if that makes sense. Because I think that that is a necessary sacrifice, because if they were shown to be in an equally shabby state, because that's just all we have in the area, it would be super depressing. <laughs> The men need entertainment. What do we have? Oh, no. I put it on stage, see what happens. As callous as that is, the theme of, oh, no, no, yeah, these guys are scumbags. They're definitely exploiting people. That's kind of more the message. The portrayal is less of an issue. I get you. But if you're, but if you're looking for nipples, there's nipples. Uh, I'm not normally looking for nipples, but okay. <laughs> 
I, I was looking uh, at Metro as you were talking, and I, I got a kick out of the search that I got. It says Metro 2033. People also search for Stalker, Mortal Kombat, Gears of War, Fallout, Saints Row, Battlefield, Pokemon? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, Pokemon is totally a post-nuclear dystopia. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, 100%. So Exodus, I remember, I'll have to look back at these reviews and see, it received lukewarm reviews and maybe the game was in a worse state on launch. I find a lot to appreciate, but there's also compromise to be made where I accept the condition that it's in uh, for the sake of the overall flavor and the highly specific things. Like, um, <laughs> this is this is ultra-specific, but there's a specific kind of glass, a drinking glass, used in Soviet era, which had been preserved. And you might have seen them. It does have a glass component, which is what holds the fluid, but that component is seated inside of a pewter or other kind of metal base that has a decorative skirting and metal handle on the side of the glass. So it's a metal and glass drinking vessel. And just seeing that shit makes me think, oh man, that came from right the time before I was around. That was, hmm. That, that is flavor feels. Um, maybe, I don't know, what's an antiquated American idiom that is comparable? You could say hot dog, but hot dog is still pretty contemporary. Maybe like a Studebaker automobile, where it's just it's mwah, zenith of nineteen fifties, nineteen forties America. Yeah, Studebaker. You can do the Datsun. Sure, but you see it and you go, I know exactly where and when that's from. And if you were to have that now, you'd say you just really dug out that chassis and converted it to, to normal means. You put it, uh, put a lift kit on it, put the nitrous on there, doing Tamagotchi. races in the dunes. There we go. Tamagotchi. Tamagotchi. Nineteen nineties. That screams 90s. Digimon screams 90s, too. Digimon. Well, I guess something called the Cyber Sleuth Saga is apparently still modern and popular. I can't vouch for that. Uh, I think I've purchased one of those entries, but I haven't played them yet because my, my backlog is vast. I think I treat my backlog like a hit points bar. If I ever finish them, I just die. So I have to keep getting more things. It's kind of like uh, Gunpla. There's a, there's a bit of a shortage, Chucks. I don't know if you knew, but um, due to scalpers and you know, pandemic events, the the supplies just aren't coming through like they used to. You can might have a hundred outlets, and the supplier and the shipper says, "How many you want?" And everyone says, "We want a hundred units." And the supplier says, "Cool, everyone's getting four units." <laughs> That's not what I asked for. Sweet, yeah, good. How many more do you want next time? I want I want a hundred units. I'll see what I can do. You're getting two. And people who are more committed and dedicated and need to get it, they just need to have it. They're replenishing their stocks and they're buying up the new shit that comes in. And the trouble with Gunpla is, if you don't catch it on release, it's going to be hard to get it again. But try your luck. Or pay scalpers, because scalpers know the market exists and they're going to absolutely capitalize on that. I hate it, but I get it. So, I have, I think, let's just put things in perspective, it's not a nothing to cry about. I think I know there's six Master Grades in boxes awaiting my time and attention and a few high grades here and there. And I just haven't been doing them because because if I go through them, then they're done. They're done. I have nothing to look forward to. A part of me dies. A horcrux shatters. Do you understand? That's why I can't read the books I have because once I've read them, another part of the horcrux shatters and I just go away. <laughs> if that madness makes sense to you. It does. Uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna transition to something else here real quick. Fuck you. Okay, what is it? You, you said vanishing uh, and going away. So... Uh... I rewatched the seri series Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Senpai. 
I saw the banner on that and I was very perturbed. You said you rewatched it, which means my respect for you is plummeting by the second. But please tell me about why we're not hanging out with Bunny Senpai. Uh, brief synopsis is it's about a boy who's trying to find out. Hold on, let me move something around so I don't sound like I'm lisping too much. Tobacco, uh, it's one of those uh, slice of life feel good animes. Is that right? Fuck no, it's not. Okay. Essentially, this boy is trying to figure out why this disorder called puberty puberty syndrome exists, and when people get it, something happens to them. So uh, he meets this girl who's a famous actor, but everybody's forgetting who she is, so he meets her while she's walking around in a bunny costume in, uh, in the first episode, and... It, it takes him through his friends and family that are going through different situations of this puberty disorder. Well, a, a, his sister and some friends that are going through this puberty disorder and his way of solving it and being kind and what happened to this person that helped him get through hit when he had it happen to him. Um, it's not bad. It's not a slice of life. It's somewhat depressing. Like this is like, eh, depressing. Like, okay. Yeah. Like this is getting depressing because I'm watching 13 episodes of this, but it's not depressing as I watched 65 episodes of one season that could have been shrunk down to 20. Like Hunter Hunter. Let's, let's open up what you mean by depressing. Is this a show that's dealing with alienation, confusion, belonging, or other themes? All of it. Okay. So but the so, cover looks so cheerful. It does. So it, it, so he starts dating the, the, the actress and convinces her after her mom forgets who she is uh, to be by screaming at the top of his lungs. He saves her from the puberty syndrome and everybody forgetting about her when he wakes up one morning and uh, realizes he's forgetting something or someone. And he wrote it in a journal not to forget. And he wakes up and he goes to this is like episode three. So it takes like three episodes to clear this. Um, and he starts screaming that he loves her. And all of a sudden, she just magically vanishes, pops up behind him and is like, you're a fucking idiot. Um, and then he has a friend who essentially splits into two people because she has a, a, a bad side, like a naughty side and a dorky schoolgirl side. She can't deal with both. And she's trying to understand how to become one person and just say what she means and how she feels, but she can't. And then the, the super depressing part is his sister. So his sister gets bullied to a point where people are bullying her and telling her to die in school, like sending her message, like, I hope you die. I want you to be dead. And she just all of a sudden forgets everything, has no memories of her brother, her family or nothing. And so the last couple episodes are him trying to save her and get her to do stuff. Uh, but he knows at the same time, if she starts remembering everything, the, the, the sister that he knew and took care of and, he grew to care for will completely forget about him. He'll go back to the way she was when she wasn't like that. So he gets uh, at the, the final episode, he does. She turns back to herself and he gets super depressed about it and starts boohooing. And it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you lost a person that you loved and cared for, but at the same time, you gained her back. So it's not really boohoo. But it's not the same person, it's, it's a different layout of that person. It's the original layout of that person, and the person that he knew was just a a person who shut all memory off of what happened to her. And this is all pre-puberty just to keep it not super creepy, I'm guessing. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Well, no, okay. some of the people are like, well, yeah, well, no, some of them have already hit puberty except the sister, the young sister that he has to save and convince to become a person again. But well, where's the part where someone's cheating on someone else? 
That never happens. Oh, okay, okay. But you just uh, who is this for? What I don't, I don't what know. Age is for. I'm gonna assume late teens, early twenties, when you're in that phase in your life that you don't know who you're gonna be or what you're gonna what you're who you are or what you're gonna be. Like is oh. the is the pace of the show more like RE remake two or RE three re two two. So it's a little plotting. It's it's got a little bit of time between events and scenes to help a person reflect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't see the appeal, but at least I can respect that it seems to be a focused tone that the show is going for, which is abandonment, uh, lack of place, poor communication, and uh, the inability to deal with inner feelings or relay them to somebody else in a comprehensible fashion. I can see that. But does it have to be so pretentious about it? No. Because Animu. Oh, that, and that's that. That's sort of the problem, isn't it? Because we we talked about TV writing, didn't we? We have, and how that's not a strength. It's actually quite a weakness in terms of conveying points, but it catches your intrigue. There's so much to the format of popular animu that acts aggressively against the interests of the storytelling. I feel because. I have very strong examples of positive storytelling. There's a, a banner that I get sometimes uh, for another free-to-play mobile game. And I may have already grabbed those before, but it's, it's got this uh, really crisp and clear visual style of characters wearing nylons, skirts, um, high-tech bunny ears, and they're fighting each other with katanas with deft grace and flowing hair in enormous collapsed superstructures. And I look at this and I think to myself, okay, Either this is purely indulgence, or the audience this is for doesn't know what the good example of this looks like, i.e. near Automata. Because that's where style meets point with intrigue. Here, you're purely appealing based on bright colors, long hair, cute anime girls, swords, I'm in! You cease to ask questions. You're just there for the flourish. And there is a place for this. I understand that. I would imagine between the ages of 14 and 24, it is perfectly appropriate, but you're really not looking for any kind of depth. You are looking for complexity, you're looking for Resident Evil style stuff, where isn't it so cool that these 15 parts are all in motion orbiting each other? Yes, but then if you stop to think about anything, it collapses. Yeah. But then I feel that you, Chucks, I'm not talking you down, but I think you're closer to a state of mind where you can look at that and say, this satisfies me. Yeah, totally. Cute girls, sharp swords, pretty lights. Yeah, I dig it's this. It's good enough. It it, it satisfies the palate at the moment. But uh, I, I gotta... I, I don't know. You got... I, I would say I, I, I would and wouldn't recommend it to people. Like, it's one of those, like... Eh. Like, because it's on a free service... Well, it's not free. You pay 15, or 16 bucks a month. I don't know what words mean. Yeah, exactly. When you get when you get bit by the end, it hurts. Uh, just pulled another one of those. Um, but yeah, so it's on Netflix. So since it's on there, and everybody has Netflix because they're trying to scoop up all the anime. They have a lot of the anime that they get from these companies that they're getting for already ha are on Funimation, and Funimation only costs me eight bucks a month. But Funimation is taking a lot of stuff they're putting on Netflix and going, we're not putting it on here. Um, they just put Hunter Hunter on there. And I'm kind of... On which one? 
on Funimation. Funimation. Yeah. Once like, you start using the he's and these and theirs and those, it yeah. gets confusing. Well, yeah, that's like I want to I want to watch Re Zero Life uh, Life in Another World, but it's only on Crunchyroll, and I'm not willing to pay money for Crunchyroll. I hear the Funimation's been doing better with their app, but I have no personal experience to confirm or deny that. I, I like their app. Their app's real easy to use, and it's it it's makes it easy. It goes from A to Z if you want to. Most popular, most episodes. They they have a plethora. Um, of stuff and then they have recommendations at the beginning screen like I started watching a show because I was watching uh I watched what was it I watched Sword Art Online then I started watching something else on Funimation but it recommended me a brand new show that came out called Balfamy I put all my points into defense so I won't get hurt Let me oh so that's a sequel to Shield Hero no that's why I recommended it to me thank you Rising of the Shield Hero <laughs> same, same okay but same concept how many times can you watch the same story, really, in tone and, and content, it's out of style, and still be satisfied? Only Go, so yeah, many. This is perfectly good. This, yeah, yeah, this, this is where I hang out. I So here's the thing. like Sword Art Online, first season, okay. First half of the first season, okay. Second half of the first season, eh. Um, and that's but why I, would... I went to Rising of the Shield here, and I watched that, and I enjoyed that a lot more because it gets a little bit darker themes and stuff. Uh, and it's a little bit more action-paced. Uh, Balfumi is just more like uh, if you're just into giddy, like. So I, I watched it because I was like, "Oh, it's this." I don't, I don't think it's called Isekai. What the hell? I don't know what type that is. Oh, it is. It is. Um, but it's like, oh, we're bubbly little girls who play in a VR world with a bunch of people, and this girl has all the defense, and so she can't get hurt, but she's also a badass because because she can't get hurt. She can kill all these monsters or help other people hurt all these monsters, and she gets a special prize each time for doing it. So now she's like this super badass who has all these, like, she can get a mech, turn into a Godzilla, turn into a, a Hydra with that spits poison, and it's just like, oh, dear God. Like, it gets stupidly silly, and I'm just like, okay, whatever. It's it's just another one of these shows. I'm not going to watch and season that's, two. That's exactly kind of the problem, where you... You're seeking something. You're seeking insight or entertainment or an expression of a focused idea or just a menagerie of bouncing titties. That's cool, too. But so often they devolve into, oh, it's one of these. For example, I hear very good things about Made in Abyss. I have access to Made in Abyss. I haven't seen it yet. But the selling point it's not just, oh, it gets dark, because, I mean, we've seen dark enough now. We're in the age group where, at least for me, I'm aching for substance beyond the ha-ha! But apparently, the themes are discussed in a sufficiently attentive fashion, and you get time to sit with these thoughts and feelings outside of uh, everything's exciting all the time. And apparently the art style is in service to be in complete counterpoint to the subject matter discussed because it looks cutesy and rounded and cartoony and polished. But it's not Happy Tree Friends, which is occasionally horrific, but very surface. Very, very, very shallow. Okay. It just it, It's more shock than true payoff. But we, I don't know, maybe not you, but me, I have to bring fucking gold penny equipment with me if I say I would like to give trust to a series of 10 plus episodes to deliver some kind of message or examine a set of thoughts and feelings. And if you do give me exciting action, please make it consequential. 
don't do the Wolfoids thing. Just don't. Hey, the show Kuro Makuro is about a mech pilot who fights with katanas uh, in a mech and as dimensional aliens. Cool. Um, that doesn't make sense. Why? Because whatever. Because monsters and katanas are cool and there's a mech. Mm, I see. You know, Full Metal Panic is a pretty good show. That's... That deals with Go ahead. That's I think that's why I liked Gurren Lagan so much. I didn't when I originally didn't like the ending, I still liked the show. Um yeah. Because it was because... just so balls to the wall wonky that no other show did anything like that. And you're just like, the fuck is going on? This is nutty, and it also hits the feels in certain parts and lets you sit on it. And then it the action is just like I said, bonkers and it's it's I, I think But it also has pacing down. It does it almost to a T. It is lean enough where it basically does not waste your time. Remember, we talked about like the two obligatory anime tropes. Oh, they have to go to the beach, and they have to go to the bathhouse. Those actually sort of deal with the plot and are not unwelcome. Is there a recap episode? Yeah, half of one. And it also goes somewhere interesting, a little bit Evangelion-esque. It's a show that knows its medium and chooses instead to reach for something higher than, this'll do. Fuck it. Who cares? You're saying they don't pull babe pig in a big city? That will do, pig. Ah, uh, that'll do. That'll do, pig. Like, right well, that's, here. That's a completely different sentiment. <laughs> the that'll do, pig is is deeper than it sounds. But it, it, I get yeah. it. Speaking of deeper than it sounds, let's talk about the other kind of pulpy uh, entertainment that has no point behind it. Uh, I watched the Suicide Squad with my wife. How was that? I haven't seen it yet. Thoroughly satisfying. Nice. Very satisfying. Better than the uh, one from 2016. Leagues. It's a better made film. Do you know anything about it? Do you want to know anything about it? I've heard bits and pieces and I've seen things about it. Um, I, I know a pivotal character from the first movie and from the comic books dies at the end of the movie because of what he's trying to do. Oh, well, it's got to be Harley Quinn, right? No. It's got to be Harley Quinn. Yeah. She doesn't have no plot armor. Which, to be fair, I think her her wardrobe choices for this film were probably the most agreeable that I've seen uh, throughout most of this portrayal. So we know James Gunn, writer-director James Gunn, had a poor relationship with Disney at some point. But he's very capable. But he's also kind of like punk nasty, if that makes sense. Do you remember his film Super? Yeah, we talked about it last last episode. We did. Talked about Slither. Talked about Guardians. And... Even outside of writing, even outside of context, the camera movement, the focus, and the pacing within this film are far more satisfying to watch, even if you're stuck at the brainless part, where you don't care who is who and what's what. The action portrayal is satisfying. The moments with characters are not saccharine or overly sweet. Taika Waititi has a two-minute cameo. I really appreciated him there. The word choices are terrific. And... I may be reading into this, and I didn't do the research, and I'm not sure if I want to, but in my head canon, John Cena portrays a character called Peacemaker, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I think it's in the trailer as well. Uh, the organizer of this team of the Suicides, Amanda, Amanda Waller, Waller, I believe is the character name, yep. She declares to Idris Elba's character, Bloodshot, who is more or less the team leader, that every member of the team is chosen for their unique and distinct skills. Immediately after which, she introduces Peacemaker to Bloodsport, whose skill set sure reads like it's the same. This establishes an immediate dynamic because 
one person goes, yay, well, we did the same thing. No, I'll just do yours better. Yeah, but like, th that doesn't make any sense. Well, this is how I do it. That's stupid. That doesn't work. So that creates a competitive tension for these people because they are competent and when they need to, they can collaborate. But there is a very welcome, very satisfying one-upsmanship scene where they're taking out opposition in their fashion and they're just using variety for every single kill they make. And just like, huh? How about you, man? How about you, man? Huh? It's, it's really good camaraderie tension without context. That's satisfying. And that's not a huge leap of logic that these characters who are introduced adjacent to each other or shown to have contrasting ideals and similar skill sets will end up facing off against one another sometime in the movie. Which happens, and it's also satisfying. But here's what I'll say. This is where the, the headcanon comes in. I have reason to believe that John Cena's portrayal of Peacemaker, either through self or through direction or making use of his relatively limited uh, straight man face, I'm pretty sure Peacemaker has ASD. There's just, there's, there's, there's little things and hangups this character expresses throughout the film that are not beaten over the head, but are just familiar enough where I go, dude, I think, I think, yeah, I think they're working with that idea very nicely. Even something as simple as the party interacts, they're all bantering under pressure, and then something gets said that Peacemaker disagrees with. Peacemaker offers a retort. The conversation moves on. Peacemaker is still stuck on that thing that he's saying, followed by uncontrollable swearing. Normal people don't usually have these hang-ups so they have it out, but instead just restating the point repeatedly. Just one of those little things. And, and, the, and the dialogue choices, uh, when they ask, why are you like this? He has to pause, think about it, and deliver, I'm thorough. I really appreciate that subtext, even if it's not intentional, even if I'm just making it up. But that also shows that a character who's supposed to be dry, simple, and for some reason has an antiquated uniform compared to everybody else, that might be a motivator. This is just the way it's done. This is the best way to do it. I'm like, I can explain it to you. Here's a treatise. Let, By the way, pow, pow. Let me ask you this. Are you going to yeah. watch the TV show? No. You're not going to watch the Peacemaker TV show? Why? I'm just curious. It's supposed to be an Why? origin story. So. Fantastic. Maybe I'll check it out in, in summary. But when you say TV show, I, I say to you in response, this film is based on comic book properties that are written and pulled from. This film can't stand on itself. Does it acknowledge the preceding film? It does acknowledge it. Will it have a follow-up? I'm sure it'll have a follow-up for money reasons. And it might even be de decent. But the advantage that this cast has is they don't have the fan love outside of like one or two characters that are so cemented into public sentiment that they're unkillable. Whatever tension they experience, it's not going to result in stakes. Not so for most of the cast. And I appreciate that. That creates a sense of mystique as to where things are going to go. There was a bit of a sagging point in the middle of the film, but also by necessity it had to move on in this direction, where I felt less confident that the story would move itself in a fashion that was reasonably brisk, reasonably detailed, it didn't devolve into camera fuckery. And I was rewarded with no camera fuckery. This was a thoroughly satisfying action film where I got whiffs of the writers and directors' charm, wit, mean streak, and general strong competence in working with color and building sets. And, I really appreciate this, while the film 
strongly agrees with the sociopolitical nature of gender politics right now, that women are cooler and they get stuff done, it also doesn't beat you over the head with it. I think it's a thoroughly feminist picture in the best possible way because emasculation is not necessary for someone else to have a better idea and solve the situation or have the best meaning. And that shows reserve. That shows deafness. That shows understanding of how you want to contribute to the conversation without simply signaling and saying, getting recognition points for, oh, he said the thing. So it's a smarter film than it portrays. Uh, Nathan Fillion gets a cameo. Big fan of that. Michael Rooker is in the movie. Um, for longer than Pete Davidson, I will say that. And I had a great time. So did my wife. We had good conversation afterwards, even though we didn't agree. But she was a little bit hangry. So that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I, I got to watch that, and then I got to watch episode two of uh, What If. Uh, when we spoke about What If, I didn't realize it was a CG glow-up show. Okay. So perhaps for the sheer artistry of color saturation and cool CG action, I might give it a look. You got you got to get Disney Plus. Okay, I rescind what I said. I will <laughs> soak up information through other secondary sources and just maybe watch a clip reel of sizzle stuff. However, uh, in preamble to the emotional slump that I had at the start of this week, I also sprang something upon my wife as a watch which she she commented, hey man, you got a steelbook for that movie. You must really respect that movie. I said, yeah. She said, well, let's watch that. I said, okay, strap in. So we watched Apocalypse Now, the Redux version. Do you have any context for what this is? Uh, I know of Apocalypse Now. I've never seen it. Okay. I know it has, was it Martin Sheen trying to find Marlon Brando because he's an AWOL officer? That's not inaccurate. Yeah. Is that the one where, uh, Tom, not Tom Selleck, what the fuck is his name from The Substitute? Bob Duvall? That's not Bob Duvall. What the hell's his name? Oh, well, he's in the movie. I, I know he is. Yes. Uh, film series. What the hell's the actor's name? Tom Berger, Tom Berger, Tom Berger. He is not in the movie. What's the one where he gets William Defoe killed? Platoon. Platoon. Spoilers for Platoon. Oh well. <laughs> just, just off the cuff, fucking. Oh yeah, is that the one where King Kong dies? Yeah, that's the one where King Kong dies. Anyway, uh, what can I say about Apocalypse Now Redux? It is considered to be the least favorite version of the fan base. Because uh, it was a nightmare production, reading the trivia in IMDb, it was fantastic. To the extent where Martin Sheen had a heart attack and had the PR spin up saying, oh, he had heat exhaustion. Uh, I, I need to find out more about Marlon Brando because I don't understand how simultaneously Brando is supposed to be a genius actor. And then later in his life, it's nothing but just shit fits with every director back and forth. Just unworkable with. You have the famous Superman story, but he's no he's no peach here either. Uh, still, 
the movie is psychedelic and nothing else. The original theatrical run was something like two and a half hours, I want to say. Uh, even though Coppola actually had 220 hours of footage. And it was a frantic editing job to get the most asses in seats and cutting it down. The Redux uh, reintroduces about 40 more minutes of footage. And people do argue it hurts the pace of the film because everyone's really familiar with it with the uh, theatrical cut, which is comparatively bare bones. Very lean, very good pacing. But then the compromise the director did later on, I think a few years ago actually, he did his final cut, which took out some more scenes from the Redux. But first of all, even though there's just like the context that we have now, uh, I got really serious disco vibes from the mood and political climate within this series, within this film. And you could uncharitably say that this movie is Martin Sheen on a boat, slowly making his way upriver to where he's got to go. You can say that. When the movie begins, Martin Sheen is seen to be not well off. Lost his wife due to his behavior. This is his third tour into Vietnam. Doesn't want to be here. Can't stand being back home. So he's begging for a mission. Command, understanding what kind of person he is, gives him a mission. But which is to say, there is no mission. And there will never ever be record of this mission. But if you happen to get on this boat and go to this place, into Cambodia, and then ice a guy, you'd be doing the country a favor. So they, they got him by the nuts on that one. And the boat crew becomes somebody that we, we get attached to, including a very young Lawrence Fishbourne, who lied about his age, actually. He was 14 when this was starting to get filmed. That's also kind of nuts to think about. And the big vignette scenes in this are Martin executing his covert, covert mission as uh, Captain Willard, hitting every possible waypoint they can of American-controlled land in, uh, what was the time, 1973, Vietnam? I didn't pay attention, my mistake. Maybe it was 69. Anyway, point being, everywhere he visits, the further down the river they go, the more wild and wacky things are. This is a film where I actually had to explain to my wife little things that I took as granted, but they're not apparent to a younger generation. What Charlie means, what Arvin and Sokom are, etc. Just very important flavorings of which body of people is angry at who and for what reason and how much of it is artificial. So when you get the famous line, Charlie don't surf, the Redux takes more time to show Sergeant Kilgore and him being a very self-confident forward leading officer. And he's really hung up on surfing. And that one of the members of the boat command is a surfer who is famous. And they just got to catch waves, even though the zone is still hot. And it's an absurd situation. There's no reason to do what you're doing. But this is, this is a man who has embraced the chaos. And so is <laughs> sends out two soldiers into the river to test some waves because the breakage is just right. And just, just, just for context, there's the napalm scene, which has the napalm speech. You remember? Mm-hmm. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's an absurd line, but they deliver it well. Immediately following this, the soldiers want to leave the situation as quickly as possible. So they point out that the napalm bombing in the tree line has offset the winds, and the waves are fading. And so they're trying to negotiate their way away, saying, oh, sorry, Captain, I just or uh, Colonel, I, I, I can't surf this. I'm sorry, it's the napalm. It blew the winds away. Yeah, you know, maybe next time. We gotta go. We gotta go. It's this really silly, funny, unfunny exchange that the characters have. 
And it just, they also steal the Colonel's surfboard because that's something they felt they needed to do. And the journey continues to get more absurd as the crew of the boat faces trials, decisions, and pressure as they go deeper into the territory. And most of the themes of what's wrong with the people there can be boiled down to fairly simple, almost Freudian dynamics of an excess of something or an absence of another beast of the psyche. If there's no parents around, the kids are shifting themselves, doing whatever. If the pressure's overbearing, the people also misbehave. There's a very specific scene that's been taken out of the theatrical cut, and the final cut, actually, about a uh, French plantation. And there's a family that lives there and are surviving the war in a private fashion. And I can see why this scene is not well-liked, but it basically involves the boat crew being forced to put down their weapons because they sailed to the wrong little dock and the local militia is well-armed, then invited to dinner where the boat crew gets to sit by themselves and Captain Willard, Martin Sheen's character, gets to sit in with the big boys at the table. And basically, it's a bunch of French people and locals discussing politics and explaining what, where, and how. And the offer is made, why don't you go back to France? They'd say, what do you mean go back to France? This is ours. We started this 70 years ago. My family will keep it till we all die because this piece of land is ours. War be damned. This is what we're building here. We're making something here. We're invested here. It's not about flags. It's about the crops that we have built and grown. There's an argument in French among two of the men. And of course, it's not translated. It's not meant to be. But the big thing being shouted back and forth is one asserts communist and the other asserts socialist. Because to them, the distinction really, really matters. The audience might not care. But in terms of why the fuck are we even here? What is the point of this conflict? Because these people are clearly not being affected by shock and awe the way you hoped it was. It just shows conviction and mistakes compounding upon each other until you arrive at a situation where you the, the, the pivotal character's perspective is he's sent to dispatch a man who, according to record and performance history, this is a stellar officer. So what would have caused them to turn and change, really? And then, of course, you get the iconic meeting of the two, where our would-be assassin is hopefully, hopelessly outclassed, and he gets to glimpse a little more of the character's truth. Hmm. And then, as my wife had pointed out, the end is highly anticlimactic, because what the fuck did you think was going to happen? Like, clearly, this is where it's all leading up to. And I endorse it, Chucks. I don't know how much patience you'll have for it, but since you're a history junkie and you love the, the red, white, and blue and think that Vietnam should have just uh, accepted hot dogs over French bread, you could find a lot of deep-end subjects, themes, and psychedelics within this. Because basically, pressure and morale, pressure causes morale to fall apart. The characters act in less and less rational fashions. And all your senses say, turn around, go home. But the man says, nope, the boat's going where it's going to go. And everyone gets everything they deserve from that. And it is one of film classics for a reason, and I don't mind the bloat. I don't care if the pacing is off. Uh, there's a USO show segment where, uh, based on a real story, apparently they flew in some playmates for the troops who have been without women for a very long time. And when the crowd gets a little bit too rowdy, because of course it does, they have to flee. Well, in the Redux, they add in a scene where we discover where those entertainers went to. And basically, our main character buys some time with the ladies for the troops. 
and you get a little more commentary and time spent in their minds and the minds of the entertainers themselves. Is it necessary? No, but it's very welcome, at least to me, because it continues to highlight that no one has any idea what they're doing. So why not just grab a board and go surfing while there's uh, shrapnel flying overhead? It's good shit. Yeah. I recommend it. I'll have to sit down one day and watch it. It's a big watch. It's a big bummer. My wife did not enjoy sitting through it, but it was kind of like a Bo Burnham Inside one-star review. Fucking hated it. It was terrific. Amazing. One out of ten. <laughs> Would not recommend. But at just under four hours, it is a big ask to see the whole thing. And seeing it in chunks also works, but uh, contemporary audiences in the short attention spans, it just doesn't doesn't stack up too well. Clearly, though, the, the film was much more appreciative. And one of my friends had uh, reminded me when I asked him, hey, man, how do you feel about this movie? The friend said, about 10 years ago, Brow, I wanted you to see this thing. And you just kicking and screaming, saying, no, 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 it sucks, even though I hadn't seen it. I had to think about that. What would cause me to react this way? Well, 10 years of unaccrued damage and lessons and reprioritizations left me in a state where roughly in 2009, uh, Inglorious Bastards came out. Or was it 2012? Anyway, point being, that's a Tarantino film I really enjoy. But at the time, in the first year of being a fan of it, I enjoyed it for the production. It was it was it was glossy, well lit. The lines were sharp. It was very punkish and irreverent, and the violence was spectacular. So for all those surface elements, I adored it. But that same mindset for younger brow would have been to say, "Yeah, Kill Bill Volume One is really good, and I don't like the second one because it's boring." Completely failing to grasp that the two work in symmetry, as a piece of poetry, as a yin yang, if you will. I just I didn't have a head for finer things that looked inward. I was interested in facts, in presentation, maybe context, but not the essence of anything in particular. So, now that I've aged a little more, of course, now I can grasp things that others may have appreciated previously, maybe deeper than them, maybe not, but it is a language that I can now wield and express and find meaning in. But that comes with a burden where I might say, hey, Chucks, join me here. But you in your life may be in a place where you say, ah, uh, this just seems really like slow and plodding and I don't understand. I don't like it. Where are the explosions? To answer your question, so, 2009. Yeah, yeah. Unless you want the Italian, the Inglorious Bastards, which was 1978. No, I mean the remake specifically. But again, at that point in time, 2009, if you would have shown me Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at that point, I would not have enjoyed those movies. Because what I was looking for was brighter and more brash and more entertainment and spectacle. I might even enjoy uh, Bunny Senpai at that point, just because it's more animu. And now my tastes demand more. They demand thoroughness. They demand context. They demand a sense of tone from the writer that is there beyond empty entertainment. Or rather sophomoric delivery where you're willing to broach subjects but you have nothing to say about their deliverance or processing those points you're just saying hey man what if like and then you say the phrase and that's as far as you go so uh i guess age turns me into a pretentious prick i remember uh i was, I was go uh, you remember going to see once upon a time in hollywood 
I do. So I remember the response you had to me when I told you, hey, man, do you know the events in this movie were actually based on real events? You're like, wait, what? No, I didn't know that. So I didn't know that. Yeah, I'd explain to you the the Sharon Tate murders, which they jokingly, I guess it's because it's a fairy tale on that end. But no, no, she uh, she did. She did die. But, you know, this is just a redoing. And I, I enjoyed that movie so much. I it's one of my favorite Tarantino films. I understand. And at that point, and maybe still now, the part you liked the best, perhaps, was how it worked with fiction, uh, factual events and then added a fictitious spin. It related to saying, yeah, yeah, that happened. That's really cool. That's really cool. Whereas to me, that was perhaps the least important part of the entire movie because I didn't even recognize that these were real-life events. I was watching a fable play out in front of me with all the specific manic pieces of detail that Tarantino would inject into the movie, rewrites and all. And I enjoyed it as a sublimely filmed piece of contextual storytelling about a bygone age of filmmaking and all the problems and corruption within, as well as a buddy story, as well as a cult story. But your big takeaway was, I know what that is, I get that, and there's value there. But you're also perhaps more paying attention to the tie-in with reality versus the execution of artistic interpretation. No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I liked how he executed everything. I liked how he got... He went over seven... He did 700 hours or 70 hours of classic radio um, broadcasts from the 70s to get authentic... Or late 60s, early 70s. uh, Authentic radio stuff and the music that they played during the... uh, driving and everything of the sort and how they added it in and what he did and how he blended, like you said, reality with uh, this fictional story. And it made it really well. And I I liked it for a multitude of reasons. The, the casting was perfect. The the acting was hilariously done, especially with the, uh, the, the Bruce Lee incident. I thought that was kind of hilarious because I don't think that's how that was. Very, happen. very funny. Yes. Highly enjoyable. And that's a take that people get uh, resentful over. But then, again, egos collide. Then both, both people get some blows in. Yeah. And the tension build to the violent climax is... Uh, it's up there. I mean, I love Hateful Eight, but Hollywood builds up to everything, how that tension unfolds. And you even manage to laugh because it is absurd. And yet it's tragic. And yet you can't look away and you go, fucking, what else is happening? Oh, the callback! It's the callback! Yeah! You still have your flamethrower from that movie? Yeah, keep it in my shed. Or keep it in my extra, like my my outhouse or whatever the fuck he called it. And just, that that's going to yep. be useless. And he brings it up like twice and all of a sudden in the movie, like, oh, shit, he is going to use it. How could you not know? How could you not tell? Oh, Maybe I- you were hoping he wouldn't, thinking, there's no way. And then it happens. I was just. But then I, I, I know the gonna... storyteller. I know what this guy can do, and it seems to me like he wants to do a maneuver. Hey, he did a maneuver and did it super well. Well, that was my thing. I, I just couldn't think of. I was like, because in my head, as he's mentioning it every time, I'm like, okay, so this is going to come back up because they bring it up when he's showing the film. He's bringing it up when he's talking to somebody else. I think it's Brad Pitt. And I'm just like, how is he going to use a flamethrower in this incident? Because if he sticks to what actually happened in real life, does he go over there and like burn all the Manson family? I'm like, I'm really curious. And at the end of the movie, I'm like, this is a really fucking good way of using that flamethrower. 
about as well as Sergeant Donnie Donowitz uses dynamite or the MP42. This Grimecast brought to you by Red Apple Cigarettes. <laughs> they taste great and cut. What the fuck? This shit is off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to see that movie again, actually. Especially to maybe like recontextualize it for uh, modern mood. But that's. I'm sometimes lately afraid that I've become a miser monger where the stories that I most engage with are basically awful stories. Awful in terms of portraying some of the worst human behaviors or loss or tragedy or grief. And I don't know what I'm grieving even. Things are actually pretty good. But that resonates with me. And yet, I can still enjoy the fun, dumb shit too. But it's this bizarre barometer where I've developed these highly sensitive probe that detects needless bullshit easily and distracts me from the good bits. Whereas, as we bring it up frequently enough, I unabashedly enjoy about five of the Fast and Furious movies because they are crystal clear with what their purpose is and in the genre of entertainment they portray, they execute that in a way that I find really enjoyable. Then there's the other films that if you look at what happens as a set of events, nothing major really happens. Some time passes and people feel differently. But I love the execution. And sometimes I even like me a good mystery, especially if the mystery is fun to watch on its own. Because if it relies on just the twist, then it falls apart for me. I gotta get to this. It's still in my stack. It's been a long time coming. But again, we talked about my attitude towards backlogs and hit points. Uh, I had rewatched Unbreakable earlier this year. I remember not liking it when I was younger, and surprise, surprise, I really enjoyed it this time. I knew the twist. I wasn't there for the twist. I was there for the interpretive, auteur-style camera work and pacing and mood that Shyamalan was able to establish. The problem is, you look at the director, and you point out, oh, it's the twist guy, and that is true. But it also disrespects what else is happening on screen for the 115 minutes before the twist happens. Because there's still a story there. It's got a specific fl uh, flavor, specific pace. And I remember when I turned around on Signs as well, because Signs was a film I didn't enjoy because it had a dumb twist, or what I interpreted to be a dumb twist. But how dumb is it? Because Orson Welles did it, what, 50 years prior? And it worked then? The trouble is, while contrivance exists, the film still works well with its characters, time spent and revealed about them implicitly, so that when things get explicit, you think, ah, that's stupid. But then, the twist being for science, spoiler, the aliens invade Earth, and water hurts them, and they go, oh my bad, and then they leave. Kind of like how microbes hurt the other invaders from Mars. But then, didn't we do the exact same fucking thing in Invincible, the Amazon show, where... The Flaxians. The Flaxians are allergic to our time. Okay, hold on. Time out. You have interdimensional warp technology and pulse guns, and you couldn't tell this is going to be a problem? You guys. You guys. This is a contrivance. This shit's dumb. And also, how are there Flaxians left after Nolan lets them know just how disappointed Daddy is in their actions? Because we get that little flavor thing at the end of episode 8 where, I'm going to finish high school. Why are there still Flaxians? That doesn't track. No one is thorough. Anyway, 
tropes. I don't mind exaggeration. I actually thrive on well-executed exaggeration, but I'm still building a language to express more finely when examples where it works for me and examples where it aggressively works against my enjoyment. So the sad part is when you were like, you know, I, I want to talk about Twist. I was like, I want to watch M. Night Shyamalan film he's going to bring up. And then you brought, I rewatched Unbreakable. I'm like, okay, called it. It's a Shyamalan film. And then you, you mentioned, hey, he's known as the Twist guy. Like, oh, damn. Like, yeah, but, that's all he's known for. That's, that's exactly the point. People didn't like Lady in the Water. And I do enjoy Lady in the Water. The is, is it contrived? I still haven't watched The Village. I know about The Village, but I want to give it a chance on its own terms because we're dealing with someone who is fighting expectation with a willfully interpretive execution. The Kojima approach, I'll even say, because people go, oh my god, this guy is fantastic. He's so smart and brilliant and thinks things through. But then you start attacking the pacing, the dialogue, the kinky bits. It's all part of the picture he wants to paint. You just pick and choose what you enjoy. Do the same thing here. You say, yeah, this is a flawed product, but guess what? I understand the, the fable at the core of this and the reinterpretation of you think it's this way, but it's this way. And that's probably the longest pull-off he's had um, in terms of not saving the twist for the end, but giving you a solution midway through and the actual solution towards the end. Unfortunately, I hear that Old is not a great movie and the writing suffers, but I'd like to check it out at some point and a lower-risk format. I have to be selective about when you go to the theater because guess what? Fire's still out there. Apparently John Cena is worth risking your life for because I did it twice with F9 and Suicide Squad. Looking forward to his babysitter movie whenever that's coming out. Oh, uh, you went to uh you went to the movies. The only mo- the only thing I want to go see at the movies right now is uh Free Guy. Yeah, that, that was also a candidate. Absolutely. I just felt that Suicide Squad was a safer bet for entertainment for my companion. Uh, otherwise, Free Guy is still something I'm interested in, but I can also see myself watching it at home. I just really enjoy the ritual of going to the movies. I, I like going to the movies. Just, I have, uh, I can watch uh, Suicide Squad at the house, and I can watch, God damn it, what's the other new film? Well, I that's, more, that's a more bombastic film. That's one where, yeah, you can watch it on your phone. It really, the way it's filmed and what it shows you, works best on an overwhelming experience. But you can do what you like. So IMAX, got it. If you can do it, if the sound mix, the visuals, the camera effects, and the CG composition work, solid. There's a spot in that film where I really appreciated a half-second recognition of, wow, mm, that's a lot of dead rats smeared in that building. But that's a detail that you don't want to see if it's a small enough screen or you're not paying attention. But that specific little, hey, the canvas is big enough that the detail comes through. Great. Big fan. Thank you for doing that. It's a side to my moment. Uh, One Piece. Not One Piece. One Punch Man. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, Saitama is not aware of the Grand Line. Because if he got it in his noggin that he's going to find the One Piece, he's going to do it in four episodes. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And no one will stop him. He just has to want it. But it won't occur to him. They just keep him quiet. They say, uh, go stare at Nico Robin some more. There you go. Put on your Opai hoodie. <laughs> no, nah, so uh, I got I to gotta watch Free Guy. I mentioned that we would watch that. I mean, there's, 
I want to watch Black Widow. That's on Disney Plus, but I think I have to pay money for that, which makes no sense. I'm paying Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN thirteen dollars for the whole package, but to pay an additional. I would, ca- I would caution you in spending money on Black Widow. I no, I'm not. When they when they do the whole Mulan thing and release it for free on Disney, I'll do that. I'm still not watching Mulan though. I understand. For the sake of David Harbor and. Mm, let me look up his name. I always forget his name. It's not fair. 44 is chest. Winstone? Yeah! Ray Winstone. There you go. For the sake of those actors showing up? Okay. Okay, that's fair. That's worth looking at. But if you're looking for satisfying character interactions, I, I'm not sure this is your flavor. You'll get something out of it. But I wouldn't pay anything and you don't have to. No, and no. So what... It's a three-year-old movie that's been stuck in limbo and now is part of a court case action because they're not paying ScarJo what she wants. No, it's well, because... to be fair, what she's contractually obligated to be paid, but still. Well, it's not that. Her contract stated that it was supposed to be theater a theatrical release. release only. Yeah. yeah, and because it was released there, they violated the contract. And Disney's like, we compensated her pretty goddamn good for it anyway. So, like, we don't see what the issue is. It's like, well, it's still a breach of contract. It is still a breach of contract. That's why aren't you happy when it happens against you? I thought you're always happy, but usually you're on the winning side. Mm-hmm. But I know that I don't know if there's any new movies coming out. He was in. He did a voice in Beowulf. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, I didn't know that. It pulled up. I was looking up Ray Winstone. Naked. All the screaming didn't pull it off. I've only watched bits and pieces. The, what turned me off to it was how they interpreted uh, Grindel's mother, which I can't remember her name, as Angelina Jolie, and that's how the, the dragon was born, because to defeat her, he he banged her, and then, then they had a kid. It's just like, it was a bargain. Yeah. It was a bargain. It makes sense. I understand why you'd say that, but I really enjoy the one-two punch of the CG Beowulf film that we're discussing, and the 13th Warrior. Because that's a really good coin with two crisp, fantastic sides. Okay, one's more grimy, but the other was just like lustrous. I, uh, Beowulf, the CG film, all the exaggeration. I did. Thirteenth wa- Warrior, none of the exaggeration. I did watch that. It was on vacation because it was going off Which Hulu. Thirteenth Warrior. Thir- yeah. So so good. So so, so good. good. My- Michael Michael Crichton, good job on reinterpreting Beowulf. Well then. We have to point out, yeah, the book is probably better in that format. The adaptation is something I really enjoyed. But as tends to be the thing, every Michael Crichton book is better as a Michael Crichton book, which makes a decent to not great film adaptation. I don't know. Congo, come on. Who doesn't like killer apes and diamonds? Sphere? Sphere? Is Abyss one of them? Which, which one is Sphere? Oh, it's the one called Sphere. Thank you, smartass. <laughs> oh, is it Crichton? Yeah, his name's spelled weird. I know he's passed away. Uh, Did you ever watch uh, Noah with Kurt, Kurt Russell? That'd be a different movie. <laughs> Noah uh, Noah starring Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken as Noah. Like, oh, my God. Oh, as fucking Jack Burton. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sphere. I don't remember Sphere. It's not memorable. It is not memorable. (laughs) Uh, Timeline is a terrible movie. Yeah. 
Westworld, the original film, was a Michael Crichton thing? Well, there you go. It was written and directed by fucking Michael Crichton. How do you do? Was it the best ever? It was. It's got good reviews. Okay. I can't vouch for it, but I'm glad something was well respected. But I know because of timeline, he that was when he shunned off. He's Twister was a Michael Crichton film. <laughs> Basically, the good ones. Although I do have a fondness for uh, oof name slip, but Twister, Twister Man, Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton from Terminator. And from Aliens, and from... Was he in Abyss? He might have been in Abyss. I'm not sure. He was definitely in Live, Die, Repeat, Slash Edge of Tomorrow, which is a fantastic movie. That's right before he passed. Right before he passed. I also got to see him in The Circle, and that was a painful watch. Congo. What is it? Rising Sun? Never heard of that. Battle at Big Rock. I don't know how that's a... He's been dead for four years. Is that a Michael Crichton book? Is it one of those unreleased things? The estate has uh, put manuscripts into circulation. I'm assuming. Wow. The later Killzone games had a knockout cast. Adapted from Jurassic Park, the movie storybook. That's why. Because uh, he wrote the first, he wrote two Jurassic Park no- novels. The second one, the Lost World, is nothing like the movie, and the first book has some differences. Let's see. This right, rights management is a rabbit hole, and sometimes you're not much happier when you realize how and why and what. The terminal man. What the hell is that? It's a night and Michael Crichton novel, though. Film adaptations. He's got a lot, man. Because he also oh, I... wrote ER. He uh, wrote, oh, wrote, really? wrote for ER, yeah. Hey, Rising Sun. <laughs> Rising Sun. The Connery, the Connery Snipes team up you never expected. Yeah, Thoroughly I've... okay. I haven't seen it, but when I saw that, I was just like, the fuck? Shang Tsung is in it. I see that. Hey, it's uh, Tia Carreri. It is Tia Carrere. Carrere. Yeah, she was in a bunch of shit in the early 90s. Modestly successful. Definitely trading in looks. Wayne's World. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I know her from. Wait, what, she's True a, Lies? I was about to say, she's in True Lies, isn't she? She like, is very much in True Lies. Like, Some on. of my formative, formative puberty experiences were tired around that movie. <laughs> Let's see what other shit she's been Not in. exclusively, but I remember. She's in Lilo and Stitch. In voice only, of course. Oh, yeah. Showdown in Little Tokyo. I'm guessing that's uh, like uh, Big Trouble in Little China, but it could do the same. Showdown in Little Tokyo. Hey, you knew what I was going to say because I heard you over our uh, VoIP. Wikipedia, IMDb, 91. Buddy Cop action film directed by Mark L. Lester and produced by... I actually remember this movie. God damn it. Dolph Lundgren. Snippets of it. There's a highly specific scene, and I forget the context, but it doesn't matter, where the two of them are badass action dudes, and they're about to go in and breach a room. And Dolph asks Brandon, are you scared? And Brandon folds in two, sniffs his crotch, and goes, no. And Longwood says, you should be. I think it's the one where Dolph Lundgren has a, a Komodo dragon for a pet. 
it, it doesn't matter. I, I have Hulu. Matter. I'm going to watch it now. So I, I got to ask you, uh, I was talking to a, a buddy on Facebook uh, a couple days ago, and he said the the Blade started the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And my response to that is technically no. Uh, Dolph Lundgren's Punisher or Howard the Duck started the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the 80s. What are your opinions on those two films? Or did you even know that Dolph Lundgren was the first Punisher? I did know. Uh, I didn't enjoy the movie as much. There was also some, I believe, cheap Italian Captain Americas. Uh, Those, yeah, they start it, It's a tricky voice. question because the idea about starting is the originator of the momentum. You can go back and say, well, technically, Pong is the first first person shooter in this proto 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 stage, but that's purely an academic note that is not helpful to where things kicked off. And I'm more comfortable saying the Blade films. Uh, as at least the first one I think was rated R, it created enough public interest that launched more attempts to iterate and not just lampoon comic book properties to be successful. Because I don't... Let me look at the grosses here. I don't think Howard the Duck did very well. No, Howard the Duck did shit and same with the Punisher. They were both terrible. Sure. But they're, at that time, believe it or not, obscure properties. The audiences for these films didn't cross-pollinate with moviegoers, typical ones that that give out the money. They'll buy the tapes later, but that's not the crowd that brings in the big dough, at least at that time. So, with this in mind, yeah, I'm aware that there are other films that precede this that can qualify as Marvel hero movies and yada, yada, yada. Point is, those fucking things didn't touch until Iron Man. That's true. And that was the firm step where you got a pretty decent movie, very good movie, actually, about a Marvel character that was third tier at the time. And then Sam Jackson drops a bomb on him at the end, the credit scene, and then the fandom said, what do you mean? Is this the thing? Is the thing going to happen? Please say the thing's going to happen. And I remember when the Avengers hitting theaters was a cultural moment. It was not for me, meaning the payoff is for everyone who's been collecting comic books for umpteen years, and to see their favorite characters and probably standing side to side on screen was seven million times more satisfying than the Mario Brothers being on screen. And I realized that I'm not the crowd that this is for, but I really like what I saw. And then, of course, the initial wave broke, and the currents have been doing their whimsy all this time, racking in all the dollars as we care a little less and a little less. Starve for entertainment, some of us. But uh, I crave depth and nuance more so than recognize that that's a trivia that's a trivia you want to know what that is go buy the comics then again if you've already walked the path if this has been your field of interest this is one more expression thereof but with a much bigger budget than you expected you can have all the fun you can claim credit you can wave your banner that's fantastic i'm okay with howard the duck on its own as a bizarre cultural artifact a pet project from, uh, was it Steven Spielberg? or Lucas, I believe. Lucas. Sure, I'll believe it. Point being, there's, do, I, do I smile when Howard the Duck is seen in nowhere as part of a collection? Sure, but more like an unbelievable, really? You're pulling this? As opposed to, my man, where you been? Get ready to fight crime. That's not what we're about right now. It's a Lucas film. It wasn't produced. Directed by William Huke. And produced by Gloria Katz, but it's a Lucasfilms production. 
production, mind you. That's enough distance to say, yeah, we pushed it out, but this is not ours. It's a surrogate child. I don't know. It's it's a curious question, but to return back to what you said, I believe firmly Iron Man is the starting point of this cycle, but Blade was the momentum setter, because Blade had two solid movies, of which I prefer the second myself, but I know it's a debated point. And then due to, produ due to production fuckery, Blade Trinity fell apart, even though it had all the right people contributing, even Pat Oswald. He was there. But the movie itself became a mess. Yeah, it did. Why did Blade 3 fail? Because Wesley Snipes didn't like the director. Yeah, that's that's a strongly contributing factor. When when you're only contacting each other by freaking sticky notes, and they have to CGI your eyelids onto for a scene, or mm -hmm. your eyes in for a scene because you refuse to open your eyes because you hate the director, then yeah, you know. But he he got his comeuppance though. He went to jail for three years. That's unrelated. It, it is. It's well, not necessarily tax evasion's not unrelated. He was making movies and getting paid. Should have paid his taxes. Yeah, but how does that represent filmmaking? Oh, it doesn't represent filmmaking. I'm just... Th th never mind. Just, you know, correlation there. I'm just being a smart-ass karma. Yeah, it's one more factor that really colors the events. But if you ever want to go back as a guilty pleasure, I mean, you could always stare at Ryan Reynolds or Jessica Biel. You can't go wrong there. Well, and look, it's a skinny Patton Oswald. Well. Skinnier. Skinnier. Before his Tulele Casino days. Ratatouille! Yeah! 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 yeah. I, I downloaded all three of his uh, uh, al uh, CDs from Amazon Prime that they have on there. Goddamn, they're hilarious. Well, how can you get a digital version of Zombie Spaceship Wasteland? Oh no. Uh, audio. Audio. Have you seen his new uh, Netflix special? How new is it? Uh, last year. Possibly. It's the one where he has the house behind it and he's talking about he just recently got remarried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, yes, yeah. I saw and then the, the, the brutally honest wife segment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, hey, sweetheart, I think I, I think that's a rat. That's not a rat. I think it's a rat, and all of a sudden this fucking eagle drops this big ass rat. Bah! Oh, that's not new. No, that 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 the, the trickster god was something that I used to cite at you. We're working together. He uses it in the special, though. Fine, let it be. It's a, it's a good one. Because he was talking about him, because his his wife passed away, unfortunately, his first wife. Uh huh. Um, and then he was talking about how he was house hunting with his new wife. Run at love, he said. I sent you the link to the audio or the autobiography. That's about 10 years out of date right now. But very good segments. He talks about his uncle. He talks about uh, hobo songs. Very important subject. Talks about being an usher. All kinds of things. You would find it hilarious. If it's like his uh, books, uh, I'm hoping he adds the one where when you get your worst day of... Uh... Out of the way, you know, nothing can be downhill from there. That fucking skit's hilarious. 
it's it's a little bit different and i keep trying to, well i i showed you wines by the glass that sketch yeah i think a while so. ago i think so when you read out the wines and in, in, in a fashion that uh it's it's accurate yes which is, is the voices that's from this book oh okay there's just a lot of things that i can't necessarily say due to demonetization purposes that involve let's call it poor human behavior yeah let's call that let's call it that Oh, sir, anything else on your horizon that you're looking to look at, get into outside from movies that aren't being released and shows of dubious quality? Uh, well, there are there are shows of dubious quality I'm looking to get into. I, I want to check out Shaman King because everybody was talking. I, I, like I said, I watch anime stuff. I watch comic book stuff on YouTube. I watch a plethora of things on the, the YouTubes. And uh, they were Netflix just put out the new Shaman King. It's a reimagining, well, not a reimagining. It's just an updated version of the original series. Um, but everybody's like the original Shaman King series was crap compared to how the manga was, and this is supposed to be like die hard to the manga. So I want to watch we that. We heard well. that before. I we have. heard, hey, we did this thing in the '90s and it was okay, but here's our brand new 2014. Oh shit! <laughs> well, we done fucked that up. Do not believe the hype man. See for yourself. Oh no, I am. That's why I'm going to watch it and. I'm going to watch it after I will watch What If and then uh, Suicide Squad and I'll probably plop that in and see how it is. I don't I don't know if they released the whole season or if they're going to like episodic shit like they're trying to do with certain series. Like we're only going to release certain episodes at a time. Like please, please don't do that. Let's not. Release schedule. No nah, man, it's like classic TV. People love classic TV. Yeah, next thing you know they're going to be like, we're putting ads in. Like damn it. Oh yeah, most likely. Trying to watch One Punch Man season two as it was coming out was pulling teeth. It was so bad. Oh yeah, because I remember you watching it on Hulu. Uh, was it Hulu or Funimation? Hulu. Whichever one. It was ads on ads on ads on ads on ads. Hulu. Sixteen minutes of footage, twenty-five minutes of ads. So mad. Uh, anytime I watch anything on Hulu, man, it's such a pain in the butt because you get a minute and a half of ads for every five to six minutes of TV show that you watch, and it's like, dude, this is ridiculous. Well, it's not. Go buy the stuff. Listen, I'll make you a deal. You buy the stuff, I'll stop running ads. You buy the stuff, psych, here's some more ads. Well, that's the thing. Like, you can spend $15.99 and you can get uh, no ads. But that's on top of the $13.99 you already paid for having this in general. It's like, no, I don't I don't want to do that. You butthole. It's not healthy. Yeah, it's, it's not healthy. It's like, stop it. Do you understand the amount of brain damage you're receiving by allowing yourself to be bombarded with ads the whole time? How does it feel to be part of the generation, actually second consecutive generation as you were growing up, where callous product designers uh, invented advertising that affected our malleable, vulnerable kid minds? And it worked because we fell in love with stuff that most of it was never made with love. Most of it was made to appeal to us to push products and our parents wanted to make us as happy as they could. So they played along going, this is not important, but you won't shut up until you get it, so here you go. And then years later, you realize, why am I still collecting stuff? Why? Oh no, it's because during my formative years, I was told by the world and the market that collecting stuff is the important thing. Fuck! So, spe speaking of being a parent and doing shit like that, I was talking to my daughter, and I had Pokemon cards out in the front room from when I was a kid. She's like, Daddy, can I look through these? I'm like, sure, go ahead. And as she's going through them, She's like, you have a Mew? 
Like, yes, I have a mule. Oh my god, you have a, a Japanese holographic Blastoise? I'm like, yep. And then she's like, what the fuck is this? And I look, this thing has to be like 27 years old. 27, 28 years old. That's, that's a Snorlax kid. Nope, not a Snorlax. It's a damn kid's kid cuisine uh, photo cover where you put a photo of your face behind it and it's a piece of cardboard that you put on top of it. So it's like the walrus <laughs> putting out a fire. And she's like, what is a kid? I'm like, oh, it's from a kid cuisine. She's like, she literally, and I quote, what the hell is a kid cuisine? That's about right. Yeah, I'm like, well, definitely you're my kid. And so I'm like, oh, a kid cuisine is something that your, you know, your dad and your uncle used to eat all the time when we were kids. It's like, uh, you know how you eat TV dinners and they have all that, you know, like green beans and stuff. And I was like, it's exactly the same thing, except they were for kids. So you got toys and stuff out of it. And one of these were this. She's like, so it's like a Happy Meal. I'm like, oh, dear God. Yes, it's exactly like a Happy Meal. Just That's you the framework. Cook, you, you cook it in the microwave. She's like, oh, cool. She's like, well, can I, can I have the mule? I'm like, okay, let's let's not <laughs> reminisce of daddy's time back when he was your age and collecting dumb shit, but okay. Oh, I'm not saying reminisce. I'm saying give me the thing. Oh, I understand yeah. its speculative value has increased, so just give it to me, daddy. Not even using it. Give she, me it. I'll well, pawn it. She, yeah, she doesn't even know how to use them. She doesn't play Pokemon on the card game. She plays it on uh, the Wii, whatever the new one is, the Switch. And she's like, oh, I, I, she plays the hell out of, what is it, the new one, Sword and Shield, and she played, uh, I bought her Let's Go Eevee. She's like, Daddy, I love Pokemon. I'm like, how the hell do you... I'm like, kid, you're not even playing... Like, oh, no! The curse continues! But I'm looking at her, I'm like, you're not even playing Pokemon right. Like, you don't even fight the Pokemon in that game. Like, you just run up and smack it in the head with a damn ball and hope it catches it. It's like if Ash Ketchum, instead of throwing Pokeballs at him, was just throwing, like, a damn brick... Or a, a boulder at the Pokemon. In Very the different show. <laughs> <laughs> like, I choose you, Vulpix. What? Thwap. Oh, God. Did you just beat that Vulpix over the head with a brick? I caught it, though, didn't I? I incapacitated it. Didn't even have to hurt my Pokemon. Like, okay, damn. At what stage of the project do you think the creative intent of the, the originator just completely ran away from what they wanted? Like, Pokemon was supposed to be about environmentalism. Now you fuckers are just throwing plastic balls everywhere. This is exactly not what I wanted. Stop it. Uh, I think it kind of, it, it's like the reference to like Mark Hamill that you're looking for here. Like when Mark Hamill went to do a voice role, he did. He's like, I, I saw this character, so I had a voice in mind. So I, right as I'm doing the, the audition for it and this voice, they look at me like, hey, yeah. So he did like a lispy Brooklyn chubby fat guy accent. And he's like, yeah, can you get rid of the Brooklyn accent? Like as it's happening, like, and then the teeth. Teeth thing, we don't like that, and the, the the chubby sound too. We don't we don't like that at all. I think right as he walked in the room, like, hey guys, I got this great idea for a game. Uh, you run around and you like you're protecting the environment, and you have to catch these animals, and they help you. And they're like, that's cool, that's cool. And what do the animals do? Yeah, they're just collecting them, saving them. And they're like, all right, we like it. We'll give you an idea, but we're gonna take out you collecting them and saving the animals. Instead, they gotta fight each other till they're dead. Oh dear God, we bought the rights already. Suck my nuts. Can't do nothing about it. Gilbert, thank you so much for coming in today. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, we love your idea about the underwater barbecue. Just two questions before we start. Uh, one, does it have to be underwater? And two, does it have to be a barbecue? <laughs> exactly. The marketing department. Speaking of, though, it's, there's there's a great quote out there. When Mark Hamill was asked about his portrayal of Goro Majima in the original PS2 adaptation for the English dub, oh, he said, I have, I have no memory of this character. What game is that? I'll find you a clip. I'm trying to remember the game, though.
Let's see. Yeah, that's good. That, that That's a minute and a half clip that'll completely convey the point. Just remember, it's Luke Skywalker saying these words. That's for you for later. Oh, he's in the queue. Oh, so you accuse the character. Okay. Yeah. I think you really get a kick out of that. Whether you want to listen to it now or later, but uh, I'll listen yeah, to buddy. it. Yeah, buddy. The forgotten dub. <laughs> when asked, how did you feel about this? I have no memory of this character. And it fucking shows. Like, what What do you mean? I did I did this voice? What? How much did I get well, paid? It's also, it's also what he said, because the, the cast for the original Yakuza game on the PS2 was swollen with people you would recognize as actors elsewhere. But to convey the thuggish nature of how these criminals would have talked to each other in Japanese. Basically, the writers said, what if they just used the F word pretty much all the time? Just just that. Just a lot of that. And they decided, yeah, this, this is how the American portrayal of these gangsters, Goodfellas style, would work. So suddenly, every character is Joe Pesci. <laughs> and make of that what you will. Come, come again, sir, two youths? Oh, I'm sorry. Youths. Oh, okay. Funny to you, funny how? How am I, how am I funny? <laughs> Did you know that scene wasn't even in the script? Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, like I and guess what it was is that he wanted, like, yeah, the the director asked him to scare the shit out of him, Ray, Ray Liotta, and so that actual look on Ray Liotta's face is real. Like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, no, oh, that that's knowing, seeing the scene beforehand, and then knowing how it came about makes it a uh -huh. thousand times better. Whenever addressing Joe Pesci. Just be aware, there's a not insignificant chance that aggro will occur. <laughs> Joe Pe Similar to how my wife says Nicolas Cage operates, Joe Pesci does not act. Joe Pesci simply appears, and cameras are pointed at Joe Pesci. The ensuing footage is somehow rendered into movie magic most of the time. That, that's true. There are uh, no Joe Pesci characters, there's just Joe. And he's so beloved that George Carlin chose to pray to him. <laughs> I forgot about that that bit. Yeah, worship the sun and pray to Joe Pesci. You, you get the same effects. Well, half the time. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> I prayed. I prayed to God for months for my upstairs neighbors to stop being so loud. It never worked. And I prayed to Joe. He tuned that motherfucker up with a baseball bat. What good? All of a sudden, no more loud neighbor. <laughs> Joe, I, I want somebody to make a Pokemon game where Joe Pesci's in there and it's just him with a bat. And it's just him. Uh, is this the most controversial Earthbound remake ever? It is. It is now because now you put that in my head too. Joe Pesci Earthbound. Is that a thing that exists? Duster partly inspired by Home Alone? Uh, well, no, the internet has not yet embraced this idea, but yes, just that. All right, folks, we need you to get on it. Someone <laughs> needs to make a, a Joe Pesci Earthbound remake. Now we have to have a recast of the entire series. And yes, we're aware this is supposed to be a uh, a kid-friendly game engaging difficult subjects, but now, now we got Joe. I, I can only imagine Joe sitting there as Pooh walks up from Earthbound. <laughs> who, who the fuck are you? Just pointing the bat at him. Do I look funny <laughs> to you or some shit? Huh? <laughs> just starting yeah. with the bat. That, that whole dialogue just fucking changes real quick. Like, oh, fuck. Pooh has joined your team by intimidation. 
And yet, somehow, super heartfelt. <laughs> Once uh. you get past swearing, the man's got a heart of gold. Just grew up in a rough neighborhood. Dad wasn't around, know what I'm saying? Yeah, he, uh, I was watching a, a short little documentary on Joe Pesci. I guess he was in some big band. Like, he's a really good guitarist. Oh, okay. Back in the 60s, and, uh, like, the person who replaced him was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, and it's like, damn. He's like, he left to do acting. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was there for like three months, and then he left because he started the Jimi Hendrix. Well, it was the Gypsies. Jimi Hendrix and the Gypsies at first before it became uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience. And uh, it was like, oh, damn. Like, that's something that if I was Joe Pesci, I'd be bragging about. Any of you motherfuckers ever get replaced by Jimi Hendrix in a band? Don't think so. It's like my nuts. Musicians are a little bit classier most of the time. I think yeah, that that's one of those. If you know, you know. It, but it's Joe Pesci. It's like the. Oh, but apparently, but, apparently, Carlin and him were friends in real life. I could see that. I, I feel like Joe Pesci. Have you ever seen that "I'm Idris Elba" thing? No. It's like a whole skit. Like Idris Elba will walk into a Starbucks. Like I see you need a barista. Like, do you have any experience? I've played. He starts naming off all of his characters. I think I can make a coffee. And he just fucks the coffee up, and the guy's just looking at it, and he's like, drink it. And then he goes into a lab. What are you guys trying to do? Oh, you're trying to cure cancer? Well, I'm Idris Elba. Well, do you have security? I'm Idris Elba. I don't need security to get back here. I'm Idris Elba. So he starts like doing stuff, and all of a sudden it cuts, and the fucking lab's on fire. He's like, mm, try this. And the guy drinks it. He's like, is that Kool-Aid? See? Boom. Cancer cured. Do you have any? Oh, no. He asked him, do you have any cancer? No. See? Look at that. I'm Idris Elba. I cured cancer. I feel like that's how Joe Pesci would be. Yes. Instead of using medicine, he rolls intimidate. And it works. So uh, Joe Pesci is the only D&D character that you can roll a one, and it's an effective, it's a critical roll for intimidation. Oh, dear God. That's going to be like Big Chungus. He rolls the one. Intense eye contact is established. The dice changes. <laughs> Did those dice just flip to a twenty? Yeah, that that always happens. Don't don't ever doubt Joe Pesci. Uh, his character Big Chungus, you know, got reincarnated and was brought back to this world, and uh, it's a, where he doesn't know about wheat thins. Like what the fuck? That was a good skit, by the way. I, I do appreciate that one. Yeah, there's more for you to appreciate in X Speed at level three. Uh, some of it's some of it's all right, and some of it's quite good. But everyone's a twelve year old. Well, can I just blade spin? No, because then he would counter blade spin. Duh! It's really dark. I can't see. Well, then um, I'm leaving. Okay, never mind, you guys. I'm sorry. It's bright now. Thank you. <laughs> That's how you establish parody. Uh, I know where the thing itself originates, but I have no relationship with Big Chungus as it is a popular culture. I don't know. I think it's just something he created. Hold on here. Well, there's no credit to Jim Sterling or James Stephanie Sterling on this search. It's a meme. We understand this. But I'm guessing you just don't know what Chungus means? Hold on here. I'm looking up shit too. There's songs and stuff pulling up. Because Chungus stands for Chunky Anus. <laughs> There's I don't think the kids that. No. That's but it's a, it's a thing that is a meme for the youngins. That's why they put him into uh, the new Space Jam. Because, hey, I clap when I saw it. Did they really? 
Yeah, yeah, Big Chungus is in Space Jam and your legacy. Again, Mr. Sterling, Ms. Sterling, uh, should be collecting royalties in that shit. I don't know. There was a, there was an episode in the forties of some TV show called Big Chungus, so Okay, that's fair. But um those rights have lapsed, so it's fair game, right? Uh it all <laughs> depends. Uh seventy five years after the creator's death. Oh. Okay. We might wait a little longer then. Grand Theft Auto, Big Chunkus. The fuck? I'm not surprised. I'm not happy about it, but I'm not surprised. Well, I'm not, you know. Spider Chungus? Yeah, the, a lot of people have done a lot of shit with Big Chungus. Fair enough. Hey, you know, I, again, if it draws eyeballs, you're going to have a huge audience. You do with that as you see fit. Typically, you will waste the opportunity. Every now and then, you will create some sort of monstrosity that should not see the light of day but gains great public affection because just saying something like Big Chungus sounds good. It does. Uh, well, I, I, I'm waiting for the day where that changes because some words just sound good, but unfortunately I can't say the word gook very frequently despite the fact that it's very satisfying and chocolatey in the middle. <laughs> I just like the word. I don't care about the meaning. It's all, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all gooky. You know, it just feels good. Maybe it's a James Franco reference. You don't know. Gookie by Gookie. Uh, James, that's Gucci. Hmm? Sorry, what? <laughs> that would be some shit. He hasn't done can a whole lot use, recently. Can you use Gookie in a sentence? Absolutely. Apocalypse Now is a very Gookie film. God damn. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll say Zipperhead instead. I apologize. Or you can just do what the what is that? Uh, what what's the goddamn? Uh, what's it? Oh, Grand Torino with freaking uh, yeah. Listen here, Walt, Dragon Lady. Listen here. I was like, Walt, goddamn. Walt yes. Like he very yes, he, but not out of hateful purposes, because as uh, I think it was a critical drinker pointed out that the film is under attack now because context doesn't matter. Because if we're portraying a story of a very damaged person, it's not allowed to be as vicious as it is. Who cares about the redemption arc? Who cares about the turnaround? Who cares that all of that is resolved within himself as he finds a new family that is embraced by a community who would never expect it to be as kind as they are once they're on fair terms? Doesn't matter. He's a mean man. Cancel that. And so, once again, the doomsday clock to double speak advances a little bit closer it does it, it, i cannot wait for 2084 oh dear god <laughs> if i'm still alive then man i'd I mean, it's gonna be like the spanish inquisition can you believe what this 84 year old man said when he was in his 20s oh my god yeah it's not so much fun when it comes to you right no but but i was taken out of context uh-huh <laughs> yeah of course yeah. everyone loves using leverage and abusing leverage right up until it happens to them. And that's the game that we have to play, apparently, because society has agreed this is what we do. And when it's your turn, you fight back as much as you can with all kinds of evasive nonsense. And maybe you're lucky enough to have a golden parachute, but in reality, can you win? I don't think you can win at all. You might be able to make some money by convincing others to fund you while you attack another idea. And 
hide that money away in tax havens before it's your turn to give it up because you have to now afford legal fees. It's not a happy game, and we shouldn't play it, but it's very compelling. And uh, Unfortunately, the, the world moves at scale by averages. Yeah. Average people are susceptible to Big Chungus and the like. Yeah, Big Chungus is going to be offensive in about three to four years. Why not? Especially if there's a sexual angle tied to it. Well, we're uh, devolving into politics. Yeah, let's, uh, let's... always a good subject, which means to me that the momentum of this session is just about tapped. It's almost tapped, yeah, I could say that. Okay. Well, in the future, do we have any commitments since we say, we're going to do this, and then the week happens, and then it doesn't happen? Uh, I'm still interested to see a silent voice that you said I should watch. I'll probably look at that this week and offer my opinions. Uh, as far as game pursuits, I may have some thoughts on Disgaea a little later on, or the conclusion, if I can hit it, of Metro Exodus. And a couple of other backburner games that are not really... They're not good to sit down for big chunks. I might start Persona 5, but oh, that's God. one of those enormous time sinks that is probably not as good as everyone says it is, except for the part where it's as good as everyone says it is. I got... Uh, what is it? Persona 4? It might be Persona 5 Golden. I can't remember which one my brother gave me. I got a couple games from him because he doesn't play his PS4 anymore because he's a PS5. Um, and so he's like, hey, just play these since you haven't played them. Just give them back to me when you're done. He gave me a couple, like, what is Judgment is the, like, you same company that made Yakuza, but it's it's a different game or some shit like that. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So he gave me that, the first one, even though they're coming out with the sequel. He's like, yeah, man, you got to play it. It's a really good game. Is that going to be something I'm going to be able to play within the next couple days before we probably get to our next session? Probably not, because I work all weekend. And I... No, of course you will. By well, the magic of editing, it's whatever. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you, I got to do my first CPR. Oh, okay. And it was on a dead man. Did it work? He was already dead by two hours. But did it work? Clearly not. <laughs> he was dead, and then he wasn't, because it fucking worked. Well, he was warm. His arms were cold, but his midsection was warm to the touch. And uh, they didn't find out he was two hours in rigor mortis until they got him to the EMS van. I'm sorry for you being in that situation. Yeah. I can't and, imagine it's super fun. Oh, no. Especially when everybody's crying. You had two people telling me not to do it. And you had the, the, the daughter, who's the wife of the guy, telling me not to do it. Like, yeah, do something. So I throw him on the ground. And they always tell you, like, hey, man, you're going to break ribs and everything's just going to, you know, it's going to happen. But, you know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, it's not. And the first thing I do, all of a sudden, his whole freaking chest caves in. And I'm like, oh, I'm an asshole. Like, God damn it. Like, I just I just felt so terrible. But then I'm like, okay, well, I got to do it anyways. It's either break his ribs or save his life. Which one do I choose? I choose save his life. Did it work? No. Okay. Yeah. I wish it did. What have you, what have you learned for next time? Uh... I don't ask for permission next time. It's I, I, I just have to do it. There's a scene in the terminal where our poor, poor hapless Tom Hanks character, Victor Navorsky, sees a girl trying to fasten her travel case. And she's not doing a very good job. It's a hard shell case. He goes, let me help, I help, I help. And he presses down on the case to close it, and he just hears splintering panel wood as he presses down too hard. And that's the sound I hear over sobbing with uh, Officer Chuck's going, oh yeah, I got this. <laughs> um, it didn't help. 
And you sort of just sort of whistle and walk away like, hey, no, I tried. Really callous, not only mean, just oh, um, I that 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 happened. So uh, I'm needed elsewhere. I'm getting a call. <laughs> Do I get a gold star? <laughs> you get to wash no. your hands. Yeah, I did. Um, but game game wise, I I don't have a whole lot that I plan on probably uh, doing until our next session. Um, said I got. I couple... would say launch into judgment and get your feet wet, because within the first three hours or so, you will get a feel for whether you want to keep going or not. Hmm. And judgment is a it's a cousin to the Yakuza games because it plays very similarly. But its pace and its gimmicks do separate it somewhat. It's much more of a private investigator story. But of course, there will be fisticuffs and eating and cutscenes and intrigue and, and criminal adjacent activities. Gotta have those. Well, yeah, most definitely. But uh... Because remember, kids, in Yakuza games, for 95% of the time, you're not on the Yakuza. Just letting you know. <laughs> No, oh, that's an exciting moment to know. But I thought I was going to be a criminal man. No, motherfucker, this is not Japanese GTA. It is not that. That's true, stop, crimes. Stop asking. Or sleeping dogs. Yes. That's way... Well, that's... Hong Kong is not in Japan. I don't know if you knew that or not. What? Yeah, I knew that. Apparently it's a sovereign nation. I think uh, Peacemaker found that out or something. Yeah, some shit like that. Yeah. Most well, definitely. there you go. There's a segue. We should probably say goodbye because I got to get this fluid out of my body. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, so, guys, uh, don't forget before you go, if you uh, listen to us on Spotify, you can find us also on YouTube where we do Let's Plays and stuff. Uh, you can leave comments in both areas. Let us know what you want to want us to talk about. We're more than open to uh, hearing what you guys want to hear or what you guys have been playing so we can uh, talk about the games that you guys have seen. Um and if you're listening to us on YouTube, don't forget we're on Spotify and Google Podcast. Uh, we also have a Twitter account, so if you guys want to see us uh, shit post on there, you can definitely find us on Twitter. It is at Grime and Game also. So, I'm not fond of polluting Twitter with garbage, but my associate may do as he pleases. Yeah, I just drag him along with in the way. Just you're, you're coming with. It um, smells funny. And also let us know what movies you guys are watching, so we can sit there and uh, talk about those also. So, for Grime and Game, as always, I'm Nutchucks. And I've been Browbeat. We'll see you guys on the next episode.